world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. And the ride goes up and down and round and round. It has thrills and chills, and it's very brightly colored, and it's very loud. And it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time, and they begin to question, is this real or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered, and they come back to us, and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok? But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your door, buy guns close yourself off the eyes of love instead see all of us as one here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding clothing and educating the poor of the world which it would many times over not one human being excluded and we can explore space together both inner and outer forever in peace We, in some way, are creating our reality around us, and we also create our out-of-the-body experiences. And if it's a simulation and we are collapsing the wave function into point particles that build up the reality around us, there will be an area of subjectivity. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grammarica Show. We are going to be chatting with Anthony Peake a little bit later. This is a fun one we uh, had to get up fucking four in the morning for, but it turned out to be worth it. I think you guys will agree. Um, but first, as always, Graham Andretti Dunlop. How's it going, buddy? Hey, good. How you doing? Good. How you like that one? Yeah, I, I like can that tell one. when you like it. Yeah, big smile on my face. I could see the big smile on your face when I got the radar detector working. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah. We made record time on the way home. Oh, we did, yeah. So. <laughs> we flew back. <laughs> Thank God, because we still got home late enough. So I got home at 11 o'clock. Yeah, that's yeah. what we were saying. Like The latest we wanted to get home was 11 o'clock. I got home yeah. at like 11 o'clock on the nose. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it was a good trip, eh? We went down to, to Spokane. We drove through like two provinces, two states, two countries. Yeah. Idaho. Idaho, yeah. Yeah, Idaho, Idaho and Washington and BC and Alberta. I mean, and it was, it was beautiful scenery on the Moses way down, Lake. man. I love that southern Alberta rolling hills in the fall with all the different colors. It was pretty cool. Right into Iowa was cool. Yeah. Just green and lots of trees and hills. Or and I Idaho. Idaho. What's the difference? Is it Idaho? It's, I think it's Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same. Yeah. They all look the same. Yeah, and then it's a little different when you get across the border. We thought we had a little scare at the border because they pulled us. So they told us to pull aside, pull ahead, which is always scary because you're like, are they going to rip the car apart and or whatever? Took they passport. took our passports and then. And we didn't have obviously. We did. I didn't have any pot on me. No. But uh, I did have a bunch of magnets, and we had some shirts, and our fucking logo is a dude smoking a joint. And if people start googling, it's just a whole. 
as much as you think a podcast wouldn't matter, it's it just it becomes a thing when you're at the border. You know, you always have it in the back of your head that they're gonna Google your name. Well, you're wondering. We just had Charles Ortel on about the Clinton Foundation, and then you're like, what if they Google and they see that, and then does that pose any problem? And they just kind of start asking. Mostly, questions yeah, and... that's the thing. Is you don't end up in there, and they're just asking questions about the. Yeah. But nothing happened. We just pulled over for a few minutes, and they brought us our shit back, and we carried on our way. And then they're asking, like, why are you going down there? We're like, well, we're meeting a friend. Where'd you meet this friend? And we're like, what are you going to say? Like, oh, online? Like, yeah, we have a friend online, but we have never met him before in person. And then just flags are going to go up everywhere. And we said, what do we say? Oh, I said we, he came, we met him when he came to Canada. Yeah, which is true. That's right. Yeah. And uh, the, guy, the guy behind us got busted with an apple. <laughs> yeah. So he was getting a lecture, but he took, confiscated the apple. Yeah, and had to really lecture him about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't take Canadian apples into America. Into America. Yeah. Do you got any fruits or vegetables? Yeah, they, they asked us that twice. Hey, guns yeah. or explosives, or what was the other one? Guns or explosives? They didn't like when I started talking. <clears throat> yeah, they were like, what are you doing? Just driving this guy down? Yeah, that was okay, though. And then we had. I said roller coaster right before we drove past roller coaster. Yeah, we had a little synchronicity with a roller coaster. Well, I was calling it one, but Darren was calling it a coincidence. Yeah. I think it's meaningful because we both love roller coasters. But we didn't go on one. No. Maybe we should have stopped. It was a bit of a roller coaster drive, actually. It was. Actually, was it was good. just a long drive. We drove pretty much two days in a row, two days solid. Um, but I wanted to say say a big shout out to all the new No Agenda listeners too. We probably got a few people coming coming on board since the last shout out on the show. Hopefully they don't hate us yet. Probably getting there. You can jump ahead to the interview if you don't like our bullshit because we don't talk about much. Yeah, the lazy ramblings. But we do have some listener synchronicities to talk about and some There's always feedback a from lucid dreaming and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, I also got to go to my first dispensary, which was pretty slick. I was kind of like, it was kind of overwhelming. There's electric screens and yeah, bud know, and cases everywhere. You know what I like about it? People it's, are offering you, it's, asking you questions. It's such a new industry that they get to start from scratch, right? Like utilizing the newest technology. It's not like they're using these antiquated systems, right? Have, yeah. You know, I was in there just going, wow, look at this, too. Like, even though I wasn't buying anything, I was looking at all the color-coded yeah. digital imagery different and, like, descriptions and all yeah, the, like, it was just... Yeah. hybrids and indicas. Yeah, it was pretty cool experience, actually. So I spent, spent a couple bucks, 80 bucks, 70 bucks on my first experience. Not too bad. So we did a podcast while we were there, too, and that's coming out next. Just a little yeah. bonus episode. It's pretty raw and, and uh, yeah... That's super stone and wandered around the grocery store aimlessly looking for Huckleberry something or other. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good trip though. Wow, the Grand Coulee was amazing. Yeah, what's it like just standing in that thing realizing that there was like a thousand feet of ice and a couple hundred feet of water gushing through there? Yeah. Only 11,500 years ago. Like only a hundred grammas ago. That's really not that long. Well, it's, it's no, it's, you got to go by generations. No, you go by grandmas, a hundred, like, let's just say it's a hundred year old grandma, right? Well, then if it's grandmas, it's still only 25 years per grandma. It's a hundred grandmas. I don't know. I know what you mean. It's, it's, yeah. it, there's overlapping, right? But let's just say. It's like 400 generations. Yeah. 
Okay, say it that way. And yeah. we all have some, some, everyone who's fucking listening to this has some ancestor that somehow survived through that shit. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. No, you don't know that. I do know that. If you're fucking alive today, you fucking, your fucking genealogy survived that. Unless you somehow got, what are you saying, that there's aliens? Some people are aliens. <laughs> okay, forget it. I misunderstood what you said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, just strong. Like I say, if you're in uh, Washington State or even Oregon, it's probably worth the drive. Vancouver, BC. Anyone in BC is probably not too far away. Yeah, the Grand Coulee and what was it? The drive. Took us about yeah. what? Probably about nine hours from Calgary. Yeah, to get to that. To yeah. get to that, and yeah. it was worth the drive. Like when you get there, you're overwhelmed for the drive, but then that whole drive like down the highway was sweet when you're inside it. Yeah. And then you walk over to that overlook and it's just fucking amazing. Yeah, it really reminds me of a southern Okanagan, like the BC area of the Okanagan, just south. And that's all the stuff Randall Carlson's always talking about. And he shows the pictures in his slideshow, but I'll tell you, I've seen all those pictures and it's fucking nothing. I've got pictures on my phone. That I try to show to people, but it just it doesn't show, it the, scale doesn't all, show it? the scale of how massive that thing is when you're standing there. And we met Brad Young down there, who's one of Randall's associates, and and we've Darren's kept in pretty good touch with him, and we're buddies. And uh, he was doing a lot of drone footage as well. Like he's putting together something really interesting for Randall's work. Randall and Graham Hancock really cl- collaborating on this, showing yeah, so the catastrophic big, big events coming, of sure. the. Uh, of the end of the ice age, right? How that could have happened through catastrophe, not through uniformitarianism. And he does all that through geocosmic wrecks. Yeah. We'll put some links for that in the show notes. But yeah, definitely a great trip, worth the drive, fun experience. We had to hang out with Brad, uh, do some recording, a whole lot of driving, going for breakfast with Justin, who, of course, has been around uh, listening to the show since like day one. Yeah, he's helped out with the show notes. Does the newsletter. I mean, the newsletter, sorry. He's just all around friend of the show. And he was just as cool as I imagined he'd be. You know, that's the best part about this show is meeting people like Brad and Justin and and listeners and friend, local friends. Like, it's just, it, that's been the most amazing part. And some of our guests that we've become friends with. Like, it's, Moore, it's amazing. Yeah. Tons of people. Yeah. Yeah. Connections made all over the world. Yeah. It's crazy now. You can just about be going anywhere. And, and just with great, open-minded, smart people that you can talk to about anything. Yeah. Like, honestly, like this, the people we meet here have a valuable spot in my heart for people that you can just open up to and talk to about stuff. That Hopefully. they just, there's no judgment and they're just, it's, it's awesome. Hopefully one day we'll get, uh, you know, we can get bigger listenership so that we can get to the point that we can start having, you know, people can start having bigger local numbers and you guys can start really, you know. Yeah, well, getting we, together, you know. If you had like more people in cities, you guys could start having little meetups, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. That seems a bit egotistical or something. I don't know. Not no. I mean, people getting together. Yeah. With people they can talk to about fucking alien yeah, change and DNA because yeah. there's not a whole lot of ton of people. Yeah. I suppose that's why people all over the world. Well, kind of like the no agenda meetups, really. I mean, that's what's happening. They have such yeah, a listenership that that's just one. organically happening, right? Like because people it's true. Are when you try and talk about shit in the office, we just get laughed at. Yeah. By everybody in the office. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it's not conspiratorial. <laughs> yeah, like, it's it doesn't matter. Norm, it's normal <laughs> stuff that we talk about. Yeah. 
I start rolling. You know what I mean? I imagine that. I think it, I think the our genre is almost even more eyes rolling than the no agenda. Totally. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. like you start talking about vibrations and shit like that, or fucking healing, or psychedelics, or whatever. Yeah. You know what's funny is you talk careful. to. We talk, let's say you talk to a normal person and they ask you about your podcast and you say, well, we have all these and you think about, okay, what guests can I say that they would recognize the name, you know? And then you find that you have a hard time, right? You're like, okay, like, I don't know, whoever, like John Perkins or Charles Artell. And the, the chances are they're still not going to know who that is, right? But then you no. meet these people that do listen to the show and they know almost like 80% of your guests are like, you oh, have the yeah, best yeah. guests on and... And they, they just know everybody. It's like, it's, a, it's almost like this veil gets yeah. opened and up. You don't know people who go out in. there is one of the, you could be walking yeah. by someone every yeah. day. Yeah. That's, That's just, all in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but. So speaking of that, we are going to probably get a meetup going in Calgary. I mean, I'm, I'm in touch with enough people now and everybody's talking about getting together. So we'll probably do that. Maybe. It's weird how yet we ended up with local listeners. That always baffles yeah, me. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's like some sort of weird effect. Yeah. I was wondering about if there's a, if that's if a Google a search or related something? or no, it's called oh, Google. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're it's right. A, that would definitely, that's it for search, sure. Right? It's territorial search. Yeah. I think. No, that's a good one. I'm surprised. That's, yeah, had a boy. Must be that Mac wearing <laughs> off on you. <laughs> anyway, it was a fun trip. Yep. Good trip. We raced back. Check out the pics on Instagram if you want. There's links in the show notes. Fear for your life the entire ride home. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you were pretty relaxed, buddy. Oh, yeah. That's because I ate my candy right before the border. It's a good thing they didn't haul us into a room or something. Yeah. I was just slowly becoming more and more stoned. Uh, what do you got, a synchro? Well, I got uh, some feedback from some listeners. Yeah, I got a, a couple, uh, like a synchronicity and um, some dreams. Lucid dreams. This. Like, how about... Uh... Down a Graham, going deep. It's a profound oh. UFO <laughs> of the week. What's to ponder and critique? Oh, you fucker. It's a profound hey, it's been UFO quote of the week. Since I threw you a curveball. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll, do, I'll do this one. It's, it's quite a long one. And it might have been done already because I'm not sure if the Mac has the latest Word document. That's the problem with transferring stuff from a PC to a Mac is it's not really, it doesn't really order it the same way. So this is the, my old favorite part of the show, the profound UFO quote of the week. This is kind of a long one. I already know what your new favorite part of the show is. I concentrate on the science. I'm interested in the UFOs seen by police and military witnesses. I'm interested in the near misses that pilots report where their aircraft nearly collide with these things. I'm interested in the visual sightings backed up by radar. I'm interested in the military bases that are overflown by these things. I'm interested in the cases where you have radiation readings on the ground. These are no lights in the sky. These are not misidentifications of fantasy-prone individuals. This is a cutting-edge technology being reported by reliable, trained observers. And it is something that goes beyond what we can do. That, to me, suggests that if it's not ours, it belongs to someone else. If that technology, this craft, was over 50 to 60 feet, 
With a, oh my god, is that the wrong one? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like, the way this the Word document shows. I started reading it, the other one. So it says, oh, I'll continue on properly now. If that technology is better than ours, then the extraterrestrial hypothesis seems to be the best explanation. That was Nick Pope. Basically, the the Fox Mulder of the UK, head of the UFO desk. The, at the Fox Air. Mulder of the UK? Yeah. That's quite the uh, monocle. Monocle? Moniker. Moniker. <laughs> <laughs> the head of the UFO. As soon as I said it, I knew it. I was just waiting to see if you were going to call me on it. Oh, I'm going to call you on everything I can, buddy. I got a lot of getting back. So he's the head of the UFO desk at the Air Secretariat 2A British Ministry of Defense from 1991 to 1994. We had Nick Pope on. Check out the back catalog. Yeah, yeah, he was on. Free. Yeah. yeah. Do you want another one or? Oh, this is kind of a good one. I don't think. Yeah, sure. Um, I must admit that any favorable mention of the flying saucers by a scientist amounts to extreme heresy and places the one making the statement in danger of excommunication of the scientific theocracy. Nevertheless, in recent years, I've investigated the story of the unidentified flying object, and I am no longer able to dis dismiss the idea lightly. And that's from a paper on exobiology presented at the first annual Rocky Mountain Bioengineering Symposium held at the United States Air Force Academy in May 1964. That was from Dr. Frank B. Salisbury, professor of plant physiology at Utah State University. Nice. A twofer. A little stumbling in the beginning, but not too bad. <clears throat> yeah, thanks, buddy. My, my throat's a bit... Raspy. Drink a little water to your safe Sasquatch mug. <clears throat> right on. I'm thinking about grabbing a travel mug. What else you got? Well, I was thinking of reading a couple of dreams, but they, they might, it might get a little long here. We got time? Is it real or a dream? What does that even mean? All right, so I got a couple couple here. Let's see how this goes. I I, I didn't really understand this one, but Darren uh, Darren confirmed that this is uh, this is a good one. So this is from uh, Rod. Hey guys, just new to your podcast. It's fucking awesome. I listened to the one last night with Wall Thornhill on the Electric Universe. Real mind blowing shit. Anyways. I heard a bit on there about sending in dreams, and I've just recently started a dream journal with this Android app, Awoken, and would like to share them with you guys and your audience if you think they're worth sharing. So this is, uh, I tried to link to that, so obviously I can't get it on my iPhone, but I'll put a note, uh, link in the show notes for this app, and I hope that if anybody knows of one that's good for uh, the iOS and the iPhone, let us know, because I'm definitely interested in trying this out. Dream journal? Well, no, it's a well, it's a dream app. Is it? Did he say it was a dream journal app? I think so. So it's probably got like voice uh, recognition or something, so you can talk into it in the morning because it's really hard to write down your dreams. Like they say, actually, I was talking to a guy at work today about this. He's he wants to try lucid dreaming. This is an ultimate pin security dream journal. Yeah, because <clears throat> that's apparently the key, right? Is writing them down. And it's so. hard to write them down. I tried it. You can't even read your well, writing there's a afterwards. a dreaming journal. Yeah. Dreamer. 
Yeah. You've probably all been through all these. I dream. No, I haven't been through them all. Dream yeah. moods. Okay, let me continue dream on diary. here. So it's uh, Wednesday. This is pretty recent here. Wednesday, September 14th. 2016 got home at 4 a.m from work got to sleep at about five got woken up by the kids squabbling on two or three occasions around 7 a.m to 8 30 tried hard to get back to sleep had a dream i was driving down a long straight railroad in a car getting the nods so i had to pull over and have a nap in this dream i was sleeping in a car and dreaming within the dream it was a very deep sleep but i don't remember much detail of the dream except this I was working for my dad, loading scrap metal by hand into a small crusher machine and making cubes of pressed metal. It kept getting jammed by weird non-metallic objects such as couches and boogie boards and logs of wood. I was puzzled as to why those objects were even there as I was hand-loading from a pile of scrap metal nearby. My hands, would, <laughs> my hands were covered in shit. I was so angry, so I asked my dad for some gloves, but he was like, You don't need gloves. It's clean bales, boy. I was constantly stopping the machine and getting into into it to remove the blockages, and then it started with this crazy noise while I was in it, and I freaked out, and I woke up, and I was sweating. The noise was my six-month-old baby boy screeching like a maniac. I didn't get back to sleep after this, and I'm writing this now. I don't know whether this was a lucid dream per se, but it is odd that I could force my dream self to sleep by sheer willpower as I was trying so hard to block out some noise and sleep and dreaming within a dream, like some sort of inception style of dream. I might try earmuffs or earplugs to see if that helps. Anyways, he says, cheers, fellas. Love the show. And that was from Dave, Dave Taylor in New Zealand. <clears throat> I wonder if you'd have weird, my age from the future. I wonder if you have weirder dreams if you went into like a lucid dream with earplugs in. Uh, I always found it weird that, uh, and I don't know if we talked about, you know, Anthony Peak. this is kind of appropriate for Anthony Peak coming on. We talk a bit about lucid dreaming. Like this episode coming up is fucking fantastic. And I've he, had that experience quite a bit. And I remember him talking about that, how you're, you, you know, something's happening in real life and you dream the sound gets incorporated into your yeah. dream. Yeah, but the timing is incredible, right? Like, how did how did you, how did your dream know? I think that's how you can make someone piss themselves if you like pour some water into a bowl beside their ear while they're sleeping, and there's a chance they'll incorporate that into them peeing. No, you dip a warm hand. You dip a, their hand in warm water and do the picture that thing. does it. Yeah. Did you that do never worked. I've that? tried that. Yeah, it doesn't really? work. The hand in warm water didn't no. work. But I never tried the picture in the earth thing. But I wonder, because I remember peeing my pants once, and I dreamed I was peeing in the yeah, toilet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my buddy peed in my buddy's hamper. What? Yeah, like sleepwalked yeah. over. He was drunk. Yeah, he was totally uh, drunk. And my buddy's like, "Get you need help? Get out of here!" And he's pissing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was a huge party that night. Anyways, uh, so. I'll uh, I'll link to that after uh, the show notes. And thanks for the thanks for the email, Rod. He's also tried to buy some of our stuff off of Red Bull, and he says it was easy as shit. He said it was really easy. Yeah, gratsguyamerica.ca yeah. slash swag. There's a bunch of stuff there. There's some uh, UK policy shirts there now, actually. Yeah, I think uh, I think I should. Re I want to read this other one that I just got. 
because uh, Anthony Peak, we talk about all this crazy stuff on this episode, so it's I might as well just stick with that. We'll save the synchros for another day. Or we talk about synchros too. Yeah, that's true. What do you want to do? Hit me with one of each, and then we'll fucking ask for money, and then we'll go to the interview. Okay, this is uh, from Ryan. He says, hi, Darren and Graham. I want to tell you guys about my lucid dreaming. I don't have them often, maybe a half a dozen times a year, and I've been having them for several years now. I know when I'm having one because I'm intensely exploring the scene I'm in. Actually, this is crazy, this one. And this just came in as well. He says, I can change scenes that I'm exploring by finding a window to look through. The first catch is I have to be able to see another me on the other side of the window who is also exploring his scene. The second catch is that we have to make eye contact with each other, and when that happens, we instantly trade places. When I'm in the new scene, I carry on exploring again. The great part is these windows can look into a scene. The, the great part about that is that it's in any time frame or location. There doesn't seem to be any logical connection between the two scenes. My last one that I had, I was in the concourse at the Bell Center, or at least I assume it was the Bell Center because the signs were in French. I couldn't get into the stands to watch the game, however, because I didn't have a ticket, so I went back roaming around the concourse for a while until I found a window. I looked out the window until I saw me. In the new scene, I was wearing a United States Air Force uniform, and finally that me turned and looked, and we made eye contact. I was instantly in that scene and was already in the process of exploring. I go into a building to look around when I see Major Tony Nelson. I'm pretty happy when it hits me that I'm in the I dream of genie world. I look around to try and get out of the building to go see genie, but I can't find any exits. I'm disappointed, so I find a window to look through. I see me, and we make eye contact. I am now in some sort of factory or plant. There are ventilation systems and water and steam systems everywhere, and it is pretty dark. I don't like the looks of this scene, so I immediately try and find a window. Sometimes it's easy to find a window, but sometimes it can be frustratingly hard to find one. This time, it took a while, and I was nervous the whole time I was there because my spidey sense was tingling. I finally found a window, and I look out to try and see me, and eventually I do. The me I'm looking at is busy, however, and won't make eye contact with me, so I have to find another window. I now hear something following me, and I'm getting really frightened. But I do find another window and immediately look through and hoping that I see me quickly. Finally, I do see me and we make eye contact. I find I'm back at the Bell Center. When I'm back in scene that I've already experienced, it almost always means that my lucid dream is over or I'm waking up. All of these scenes, I feel a wide range of emotion and each scene is very intense and seems to last a long time. This last lucid dream only had a few scenes, but sometimes I can have many scenes in, my, in one dream. In my lucid dreams, I don't have too much interaction with people, even though I try. It usually is just exploring, but I'm trying to figure out how to, a way to interact more with people, just in case I end up in a brothel scene. I really enjoy your show, and I find it incredible with the amount of variety of guests that you guys talk with. Keep up the great work, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. And yeah, man. Yeah, thanks, fuck, Ryan. Yeah, out of all this like lucid dreaming practice, out. then he should be right into the brothel. Like when you see your your <laughs> guy, 
with the, and he looks at you in the eye, say, take me to a brothel. I'm like, see if you can get in there. Ask, ask your higher self that question. You know, the people talk about that question. Like, this why isn't am what I higher, here? So this is what we're not used. It's not fucking lucid fucking hooker. Well, that's what, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you do that as a goal in there? Is that a goal? Yeah. You fly and you have sex. Like those are the two things you do, right? You become lucid pretty much for those reasons. Like, so you can fly or you can find, you know, like a brothel. Uh, just choose Not which to one you want. The universe and well, that that too. That's, pretty, <laughs> that's, that's, you, that's part of the flight. Okay. <laughs> Bottom of the ocean. But yeah, you, you think by now he'd be able to Middle find that, Earth. right? A million things to explore other than brothels and fucking flying. Well, I guess I'd be flying around when I did it. What would you do if you could lucid dream? Send in your uh, suggestions to Graham. I think that could be fun. Yeah, I'm maybe you're sure. right. Maybe it is all about brothels, brothels and flying, huh? I mean, brothels is kind of an old term. That would probably look like uh, more like for like the Roman bathhouse bath or something like dudes. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there's anything wrong with that. Uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like the IG and genie world. I mean, yeah. I'd be looking for genie too, probably. Right? What are you I'll guarantee you would. <laughs> Guaranteed you would. Yeah, you'd have a determined look on your face. You'd an extra little bit of bounce in your step. I'm a rambling grand with synchronicities all over the web. And Darren is skeptical about everyone and don't believe it yet. All right, this one's pretty funny. This is from Stephen. He says, uh, hi, Darren and Graham. And the reason why this is pretty funny is because we, after we had our little uh, roller coaster discussion. You tried to rig the synchro by putting on the solar coaster song? Yeah, I did try. And, I did try, and, but you caught me. Yeah. Anyways, he says, uh, hi, Darren and Graham. I enjoy the show, though I pick and choose which ones I listen to based on interest in the subject. I'm looking forward to listening to the Charles Ortel episode. I have what I think is a synchro, but I've been debating sending it in for a while. There's not a lot to it, but it's worth telling, I think. My wife doesn't think it's a synchronicity. She and Darren would get along pretty good. (laughs) My wife and I were driving down the highway and talking about something, which I can't remember. Then the word boho came into my mind, which I've only ever really heard once maybe five or six years ago. It's a fashion thing, like hippie chick. You ever heard the word boho, Darren? No, B-O-H-O. I'm going to yeah. Google it so I have a little reference. And it was a title of a magazine my wife really liked, but she only ever found one copy and couldn't get a subscription in Canada. Take off, eh? Let's see, we get a lot of Canada feedback, too, from listeners. I think both of those last Google. emails are from Canada. She says, uh, I then brought up the word with her, to which she confirmed the whole magazine thing. A couple minutes later, as we were driving down the highway, I see a sign for a boho sale in Cobble Hill. I immediately pointed it out to my wife, thinking she would be really excited. Like, maybe they're, they're all back issues of the magazine there. But she was not interested at all, and we kept going to our de- destination. But what are the odds of seeing a boho sign on the highway, let alone having just been thinking and talking about it a couple minutes earlier? 
She thought the odds were good and claimed that it was a common word, which I dispute. Maybe all the people driving down the highway reading a boho sale sign and thinking, what the hell is a boho? Put the word into the ether and slipping it into my mind before we got close to the sign. Who knows? Anyway, that is my synchro. Keep up the good work and thank you for your courage. Oh, how appropriate is that? I've never... It's, uh, a, it's a night. Or a, not a night. It's a No Agenda listener, too. Oh, thank nice. you for, the, for your courage is the clue. So I said, so Boho's a new shut up slave, new wave hippie glamour girl thing. I haven't anyway, seen a lot of like, Boho. A, like a female hipster, bohemian, the best style in the world ever. That's no, bo- no Boho is um, bohemian. Uh, <coughs> Adjective socially unconventional bohemian. Her thrift store style. Her thrift store style is Boho. Her stress on love and equality make her so boho, bro. Bohemian. But it's not quite, it's like a female bohemian hipster then, sounds like that. Yeah, hippie, hippie, hipster. My wife's probably a boho. Yeah, your wife's a boho. (laughs) (laughs) But I've never heard the term, so I'm going to give him a 7.5. Ah, that's a nice one. So take that wife. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to stick together. Yeah, thanks for emailing in. And let us know how you found uh, the show, and let us know where you're from, too. Yeah, everybody's spam ground right now. And Darren talked a lot tonight, so there's a lot of people dishing money. Oh, I forgot all about that. I should have talked more. (laughs) Yeah, you should have talked more, buddy, but your short-term memory just let you down again. I I probably got a good 10 minutes in there anyway. Yeah, that's pretty good. How much were people donating? So Darren got some pretty positive feedback on Twitter. Was it Twitter? Yeah, I was negative first. I was just being sarcastic. I got positive feedback when I lost my hat, too. Motherfuckers. So anyways, uh, people were saying they're going to donate. The more you talk, the more they will donate. Well, one guy said he would only donate if I stopped talking. That's how it started. I offered to not talk for an episode if he would support the show. Right. That's very people said they'd back out. That's very team player-ish of you. Oh, there's Team Graham shirts now. You oh, can yeah. Get, <laughs> oh, yeah. You can was... even get a Team Graham miniskirt. I took extra time to make a no Team way. Graham miniskirt. Did you got some short shorts there? There's no short shorts. Otherwise, you'd be wearing a pair. It would be. So, um, so anyway, speaking of that, that's a good way to support the show. Is uh, There's a link in the show notes. I think it's uh, the swag link, and it takes you to Redbubble, which actually you can just pick and choose graphics and shit and have it shipped out real easy. Yeah, and I then, think stickers, coffee cups, pillows, fuck. It's hoodies. And if you're local, shirts. if you're local, we have a few t-shirts left in uh, that I can just uh, get to people personally. That's right. Because we want to get rid of that inventory as well because it's cost. It costs a lot. We don't really make a lot. Uh, I think that Redbubble thing is a couple bucks and a couple bucks of purchase goes to us. That's right. And we do have a bunch of fixed expenses here, and we but appreciate you guys unlimited thing. Like we couldn't stock so much stuff, so now you can go get whatever you want made to order. Yeah, every time I had to buy shirts, it was a minimum like three hundred dollar order or something like that. And we weren't yeah. really. By the time I, I walk over and mail it, like we're not making. And paying. Anyway. Not that we we're trying to make money, but we're just barely covering costs. And so you can get everything there from Classic Gramerica, Save Sas, Shoot Sasquatch. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff. Check it out. Gramerica.ca slash swag. Head on over to Gramerica.ca slash support and uh, sign up for a monthly donation if you haven't yet. Those of you that have, we thank you a bunch. 
But uh, yeah, we definitely could use a few more uh, subscribers. So check out anything there. You can get in for as low as a buck a month. It's about 25 cents an episode. It's about 12 cents an hour, which ain't bad. Um, you can't get entertainment like this. Well, maybe you can. Probably you can. <laughs> um, right up to 30 bucks a month. And uh, yeah, you can check all that out there. You can do one-time donation. And uh, it stops us from ever having to do something silly like charge the back catalog or have some stupid ads or sponsors ads or, or something. Website yeah. providers and yeah. all this other nonsense. But I mean, will about me naming. The good thing is, like, we didn't realize it would be this expensive. We we're going to try and do it on the cheap. But you and I both like to do things right. So we... You know, we made a good effort of it, and it's great because people are helping us with the expense, and it really does help. That's right. Yeah. Winter is coming, so we're going to have to start heating this motherfucker yeah. again. Or wear some toques. Or wear some toques, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, check out all that uh, stuff. It's all in the show notes, but yeah, check out that. Sign up for a subscription if you haven't already. Um, email Graham. Spend. Send him your synchros. Let's like flood that motherfucker this week with synchros, uh, dreams, trip reports, whatever you got. Anything interesting? UFO sightings. UFO. I'd sightings. like to hear again. Got? Got, I got. I got one saved up to read too. But yeah. anything you might think we'll get a kick out of. Yeah. So and send that shit in. Sign up for the newsletter. Grammarica.ca slash news. Justin puts a lot into work for that. Into that, and he bought us a sweet breakfast. Big thanks to Justin for that. What else you got? Am I forgetting something? Just Anthony. This is a great episode. I hope Absolutely. you enjoy it. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had to get up at 4 in the morning. Yeah. I got up about 4.30, truth be told. So, actually, I'm looking forward to listening to this one, because when you get up that early in the morning, you kind of I felt like I blacked out some of it. I was listening to a lot of Anthony the night before. Me to too. Kind of I, research have, I have a hard time remembering what was what ours was and what was that. <laughs> Because you're not used to getting up that early. Yeah, yeah we've, wanted, we've wanted to talk to him for a long time, and we've been in touch with him back and forth for a while, like years, so this was great to finally have him on. Yeah. And it kind of fits in with our theme lately about, like, electronic universe, electric oh, universe, awesome. yeah, and the, the simulation theory, like, we'll be releasing Jim Elvidge as soon as well, and then about that, so it's it's all sort of like this uh, theory of everything, alternative universe type stuff. Yeah. And I'm going to read a short excerpt of 10 pages from Anthony's book just for uh, Ulysses and Redacted before uh, we jump into the intro. It should take me about 20 minutes. Wow. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be funny. Enough. Anyway, inside joke. Check out uh, the interview with Anthony.
excited tonight to have uh, Anthony Peak on the show. We've been talking about Anthony for a couple of years now. We were going to have him on a little while ago, but we just didn't connect about uh, his book with Irvin Laszlo, The Immortal Mind, and it was uh, subtitled there, Science and the Continuity of Consciousness Beyond the Brain. But uh, this timing is really well because his new book is coming out, which is, I believe, his ninth book. Anthony's been writing about consciousness and the borderline areas of human consciousness for 10 years now. And his new book is called Opening the Doors of Perception. Super interesting stuff. Every time I, you know, I hear you speak, Anthony, it just it inspires me um, about all this, like, you know, all these deep areas of consciousness. So really happy to have you here and chat about it. No, it's really great to be on board, as I was explaining to you just before. You know, I know your part of the world quite well. My sister lives in Edmonton, and I've spent many happy times uh, in Calgary. So really great to be talking to the wonders of modern technology that we can do this. Yeah, admittedly, you, admittedly, for you, it's the middle of the night, but for me, it's a nice, very sunny September England afternoon, so it's nice. quite good. Well, I've also traveled around your area quite a bit, too. I have a, My mom was born in Skipton. Oh, and right. uh, so we've, I've been to the UK a few times and I have my uh, English citizen, or my English, my UK citizenship. Are you a citizen? Well, I, I don't have my passport, but I've got the citizenship, yeah. So uh, Skipton's a nice place. I used to live in Harrogate, which is just down the road. Right, yeah. That's beautiful. I love driving around the UK. I'm looking forward to going back one day. Good. So uh, I think before we before we move on to your new book, I really am interested to see how your how how it was working with Irvin Laszlo with your with your book there. Like you guys really lay out a lot of evidence to uh, to consciousness beyond the brain. I thought we could talk about that briefly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was I was very, very humbled when uh, Irvin approached me. I'd been a huge fan of Irvin Laszlo's work for oh, 15, 20 years. And um, he came across one of my works um, a few years ago and contacted me and said, you know, I'd really like to write a book with you. Wow. And uh, I thought, wow, this is the Irving Laszlo. You know, <laughs> That's going to be he's written, well, Absolutely. And the people he'd written books with, you know, it's just, just incredible, including people like Mikhail Gorbachev and various other people. And there was little humble little me. And um, initially, we, we decided, what had happened was he'd already negotiated the book contract and he was looking for somebody to work with on it. And he was looking for somebody that was taking a more scientific angle and was interested in the quantum physics and such like. And and he considered me to be the ideal person. In fact, as he said to me, he said, you were the one person that I felt I needed to write this book with. Um, I then went down to Italy and met Irving. We did a, uh, a, a conference at the University of Milan. Um, about 18 months, two years, uh, just before the book came out. And it, that was a fascinating exercise as well, because we had we had people coming down from CERN. We had people coming from around the world. In fact, as a little aside story, but it was rather embarrassing because um, there was one lady there called Jean Houston. <laughs> and when I got chatting to her, uh, I discovered that she was the stepdaughter of Margaret Mead, the very famous anthropologist. But I then turned around to her and I said, so where do you live? And she said, oh, I live in Houston. And I said, well, that's a coincidence, isn't it? Your name's Jean Houston and you live in Houston and she said yeah because that's because my great-grandfather founded the city yeah. and I went oh wow okay okay fine you know sort of uh, you know I guess I'd say the same thing to Jack London if I ever met him as well but, uh, <laughs> there you go and there's Randy California of course who was a famous musician I suppose he came from California there you go and there's I, Robert California from the office Oh, really? Oh, that's the American version of The Office. I've never seen that. I've always wanted to. I love The Office TV series over here. Absolutely so accurate. Incredible. Uh, yeah, if you like the UK one, you'll like the American one, guaranteed. 
Okay, it has this a profound area of embarrassment, doesn't it? I mean, that's the whole brilliance of it. Yeah, is it's you hard just to watch. cringe. Yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> and go, oh my god, I know people like that all the time because <laughs> I work as a management consultant as well. So I just know those kind of people, <laughs> you know. And the thing is, it's those kind of people that actually find the office very amusing, and they don't see themselves in it. That's the weirdly weird thing, you know, where people just don't see themselves in things. Don't you realize you're a walking parody? <laughs> There you go. There you go. Darren's pointing at me right now, yeah. which is kind of funny. <laughs> oh, dear. It was this, uh, this um, Canadian humor. Mm. Yeah, because I used to love the thing called Kids in the Hall, which oh, was yeah. very popular. It's great. You know? And I love your band, uh, Bare Naked Ladies. I love their sense of humor as well. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, Kids in the Hall is good. These are the Daves I know, I know. Oh, good. So we're actually on the same vibration level now. Yeah. Earlier earlier on, we were talking about um, Graham Parsons uh, and the Flying Burrito Brothers. And for everybody out there who does know the Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers, my Canadian friends over there hadn't got a clue who I was talking about. I'm going to play a song at the end of the episode so that everyone can come up to speed. All right. Excellent. No, it'll be really good. Sin City is a really good song on that one. You know, um, that's a really good song. What's it called? Sin City? Uh, Sin City. Yeah. And there's also White Horses, which um, it was a cover version of a Rolling Stones song, which which Graham Parsons did a fantastic version of. But of course, as I was saying to Graham Parsons, they actually, when he died, they took his body out into the the, uh, Mojave Desert and burned it. Uh, Good job he was dead. Yeah, they stole it, and that's why they make the movie uh, Grand Grand Theft Parsons because it was such a curious story. It was it was a semi amusing uh, storyline. I wonder but, uh, if that's a weekend in Bernie's is based off of. <laughs> yeah, I think a weekend in Bernie's actually came out earlier, um, but a similar kind of idea. I mean, that's a bizarre movie, isn't it? <laughs> God, Good we're not actually talking about Laszlo here, guys. No, I know. But it doesn't matter. That's no, what it's all about. That's, that's what right. It's all about. You're semi-comatose, and I'm out in the sunshine, so right. you know, maybe it's the best route to go. So how did the book come? How did the book uh, do then, or how was the reception of it? Because it's it, you guys really laid out uh, what interested me about it is, you know, for for somebody who's dealing with skeptics all the time, all the books lays it out pretty good about um, the evidence, right? Yeah, our, our our approach very much was to to, to just present the evidence. Uh, we it, it was an interesting exercise because I say uh, he's down in Italy and I'm over here in the UK, just south of London. So we wrote our own sections and then sent them over to each other and then discussed over Skype what was in it and then took it back and then rewrote it as we saw fit. Um, unusually for me, I very much was the person responsible for the um, the narrative side, the, the historical elements and a little bit of the quantum physics because ordinarily I'm very much interested in the physics side of things. But it gave me an opportunity uh, to go out and talk to a lot of people because um, over the years I've, I've, I've met up with many mediums. Um, my position on mediumship is 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 sitting on the fence effectively because i think that there are some very strange curious things take place but there's an awful lot of bullshit out there in terms of mediumship as well so we have to do a fine line the charlatans are out there Mm -hmm. the snake oil salesmen and they they erode and destroy the credibility of the genuine people and i know two or three genuine people who cannot control the communications they just happen um, whereas the, I think the individuals that say that they can just do it by snapping their fingers, um, I don't tend to believe because I think it's far more um, something that happens to you 
that the communication comes through that you don't facilitate it, it facilitates you. Um, and I, I, was, I was fascinated by some of the information I came across. And to be honest, it started to convince me of some areas that for many years I'd had a degree of scepticism about. I began to think, you know, there's something in this. I mean, there was one particular case that absolutely amazed me. Um, there was a guy called uh, Erlander Haraldsson, who's professor of psychology at the University of Iceland. And Haraldsson um, wrote an article about a very peculiar series of events that took place at the turn of the 19th into 20th century, um, whereby there was an incident. There were a group of um, people working with a medium called Indrida Indridason. And this guy used to have what was called drop-ins. Now, a drop-in is whereby they're talking to one person and then suddenly somebody else comes in as if something breaks into the communication. Uh-huh. Uh, and what happened was he, was he was talking to certain spirits, as he claimed, and then suddenly this other voice comes in. And this voice was speaking in Danish, um, the Danish language, rather than in Icelandic. Because in those days... Uh, Iceland was part of Denmark. Uh, it's only in recent years that the Icelanders got their independence from Denmark. And this voice identified himself as being somebody called Emil Janssen. And he said he was dead and had died a few years previously, but was looking at a fire taking place in the centre of Copenhagen. And he told everybody in the in the in the in the, in the place in, in in Reykjavik in Iceland where the fire was taking place, and he said it's happening now. Um, this place is burning up, uh, and the fire brigade is just turning up to deal with it. And he cut out then, and he said, "I'll come back to you later to see how it develops." And then he disappeared, and the medium came to, and they thought that was rather odd. And then about an hour and a half later, in Driddison, it happens again, and this Emil Janssen comes in again. And he's saying, oh, they've all sorted it out now. Uh, the fire's out and everything else. It's in an old factory and it's all sorted out now. And then then they got asking him questions. And they found out a lot about him, that he had uh, two sisters, uh, both of whom uh, were still in on on Earth. And, and his brother had died or something else. There was something else complex about him. But what then happened was they um, thought, well, I wonder if this is just just weird or what now in those days it took around about two weeks for the newspapers to come from um uh copenhagen over to Reykjavik. so therefore there was no form of possible communication telephone lines were not there so there was no form of possible communication nobody could have known about this and when the newspapers arrived lo and behold there had been a fire on that very night in uh, uh in in kogenstad uh, one of the major streets in um, in Copenhagen. And suddenly it was, wow, you know, how how could this be? This creature, whatever it was, was viewing something that was really happening. Um, they then, what happened was many years later, uh, Haraldson did some research and he discovered there was indeed somebody called um, Emil Janssen that was living in that street and had lived in that street about three or four houses down. And had died about in the time he said the things he said about his brothers and sisters were absolutely correct. So here we had some here I had something that was incredible and totally inexplicable. Um, clearly, whatever was communicating with these people 
was seeing something that was happening miles away. So it was a case of telepathy, distance viewing, or whatever we want you want to call it. And that in is to me in every level inexplicable. Totally yeah. inexplicable. Yeah. That's a that's a great example. And it seems to me like that's an example of oh, there's a lot of those examples around there. And you know that they're just it's hard to deny that there's something going on when you have you know so many of those types of of reports i mean unfortunately it's hard to scientifically prove but i yeah. mean but i mean the anecdotal evidence and and those types of accounts you know should should stand up you'd think well that's, more that's than it the, does. my that's my point that has been for many years you know it's not an original quote but nevertheless i really play by this that the plural of anecdotes is not proof um anecdotes are by their very nature usually intensely personal so therefore it is very difficult to objectively scientifically reproduce these circumstances and of course the scientific method demands reproduction yeah. if somebody claims they can get out of their body therefore they have to do it under control control conditions yeah but for instance um one of my earlier books was called the outer body experience and in this um i i took a very very uh, somewhat cynical viewpoint of out of the body experiences in the sense that i argued that they were inwardly generated that you, you, when you have an out-of-the-body experience, you you are in a environment that is created by your 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 memories of your bedroom. So when you have an out-of-the-body experience in your bedroom, you're remembering what the bedroom looked like, huh. and therefore you're in this sort of semi-sleep state, sleep paralysis, REM intrusion, whatever we want to call it, and you're dreaming. But I was contacted by a guy called Graham Nicholson, who you really must get on this show. Graham is excellent. Well, Graham and I have done a lot of things together now. And Graham contacted me because he's been experiencing out-of-body experiences since his childhood. And he said, I can give you evidence of an out-of-body experience that took place with me that I have absolute proof took place. And he told me that back in 1999, he had been... Uh, teaching at some course. He's also a very, very quite famous artist in the UK. And he said he was teaching on this course and he suddenly felt strange. He felt his knees buckle and he blacked out to come to, as he claimed, he was in a jungle. And he said this was a more vivid dream than I can ever imagine. He said I could feel the heat on my back. I was sweating and I could feel the moisture coming from the plants. And he said, and I walked through the plants and I opened the plants and there were all these leaves in front of me, he opened them, stepped out and he was, he stepped out into a corner of two roads in Soho in London. And suddenly he said it was such a strange from being in a jungle to standing on a corner, street corner in Soho. And he said, it was so real. Somebody ran past me and he said, I felt the draft as he ran past me. And then he said, I looked up and halfway down the street, there was an explosion and this building erupted in flames and people were staggering out on fire, holding themselves and everything else. And then he heard people calling and he heard people saying, Graham, Graham, in the distance. And he realized it was the people in the lecture theater <laughs> calling him back into his reality. And he found himself rising up and coming to. And immediately when he came to, he said, there's going to be a terrorist attack in London. I've just had a precognitive out of the body experience. It's going to happen sometime in the future. He described exactly where it was going to happen. Um, and he was on the corner of Old Compton Street and Brewer Street. And five days later, there was a bomb attack in a pub in exactly the street that Graham said it was going to be. In exactly the same set of circumstances, a pub called the Admiral Bembo. And it was a gay pub and some guy put a nail bomb in there and he killed about three people. 
Now, Graham has signed affidavits from the people who witnessed this happen. Now, I have no answer to that because it wasn't only an out-of-the-body experience. It was a precognitive out-of-the-body experience. He was seeing the future. So clearly here we have yet another anecdote. But because these are anecdotes doesn't mean they don't happen. You know, that, you know, and the scientists will come along and they will say, oh, you can explain precognitions because, you know, people micro dream every night, for instance, precognitive dreams. People micro dream every night. So therefore, and there's what, four billion, three billion people on the planet. People have 20 of these dreams a night. Multiply them by the number of dreams that could be happening. It is not at all surprising that somebody has a dream that in a few days time comes true. You know, they'll dream of a plane crash. I counter that by saying I know somebody And again, I've seen evidence of this. I've actually seen a fax, date stamped fax that this guy sent to British Airways. This guy had a dream whereby he was in a hotel and in the dream, he walks to the window to see Concorde go flying past him with its back on fire. And he then sees it crash. He knew it was sometime in the winter because there were no leaves on the trees. And he also knew it was somewhere foreign. But what was even weirder was that he then sensed the people dying on the plane because he felt them go through him and they were speaking to each other in German. And because this guy speaks German, he was aware of what they were saying and they were going, my God, what's happened to us? Where are we? Where are we? What has happened? As you probably know, Concorde um, crashed. What The only time that Concorde has ever crashed, it crashed in Paris. If you look at the videos, you actually see the back of it on fire and the people on the plane were German. <clears throat> This guy was so worried about this future event he'd seen that he sent a fax to British Airways warning them that there was going to be a crash. And again, I've seen this. Now, that is inexplicable, but even more inexplicable. And I will stop on these precognitive stuff because the most amazing one. Have you ever seen the album called um, Party Music by a band called Coop at all? C-O-U-P. No. Okay, you need to, what I would suggest is, okay, guys, if you're listening to this now, go online, search this. It's C-O-U-P is the name of the band and the album's called Party Music. This will blow your mind. When you open it up, you will see an album cover of two characters, two gangster rappers. One of them has got a little kind of um, device in his hand. Behind him, you've got 9-11 and you've got the attacks on the Twin Towers. Okay, it's absolutely as it was, the Twin Towers, the the explosion at the side, the other one on fire and everything else. The weird thing is, we know, and it is absolute proven, that album cover was designed in March of 2001. Absolute fact, they'd already printed them. They were ready to go out. I seen seen another uh, album cover from even long ago. Shit, which one was it? Where they're like flying into New York on a plane in the World Trade Center's... Yeah, that that one is uh, Dream Theater. That's uh, right. Scenes from Scenes from New York, and not only that, that album was released re- uh, was was um, actually released on the day of the attacks. Wow! It actually appeared in the record shops the day of the attacks, and you yeah. actually see the twin towers surrounded by flames. You see planes either side of them. And there and was again, a lot of precognitive dreams about that. A lot of people report. I, what, what didn't the Global Consciousness Project or whatever correct. say that it actually fucked with some computers? Correct. There's something called P-E-A-R, the PER project. Yeah. And there was a kind of a, a sensation in the air. People, there was, there was, people were, 
recognizing there was going to be some huge event. Now, if you argue that people have an ability to see the future, now, in my work, I suggest we can see the future because we've already lived this life before, which we might touch upon later. But I do the science of how this may be the case. In other words, precognitions are actually memories, not precognitions. So therefore, if we have, many of us have lived this life before, we will have subliminal memories of huge events like 9-11. So therefore, there will be millions of people around the world who will subliminally feel something's about to happen. I have a feeling that something's going to happen. And 9-11 was the biggest event of our lifetimes and hopefully will be the biggest event of our lifetimes. So it's not at all surprising that if we are living our lives again, and I argue we're living in a simulation, and within that simulation, we live our lives over and over again like a computer game. So therefore, rather like a sim on a screen who will not necessarily recall the fact that they have done this before, there will be something inside them, what I call their daemon, their game player, who will remember they've done this before because the game player will know what happened in the game last time. Hmm. Yeah, that's funny. I was just talking about... uh talking about that the other day because someone was asking me about quantum computing yeah. uh, and the implications of it. And it's, it seems like quantum computing really means all of a sudden we've got the ability to start moving information at the speed faster than light so we can start running, you know, infinite simulations in, you know, really not a lot of time. So if that's... Well, go well ahead. this is... Yeah, this is the really fast, because the, the whole idea of quantum computing um, makes my brain hurt in various ways, because in the first one, it's an application of Everett's Many Worlds interpretation of quantum physics, which effectively would argue that you can use alternate universes to, 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 you, to do computing. And because there's an infinite number of alternate universes, you can effectively have almost infinite computing power. Now, the idea that this is a simulation is... Is, is is very, very strong. The reason is it's just an application of logic. As you know, there's something called Moore's Law. And Moore's Law, uh, uh, the guy called Moore, he was one of the founders of Intel. And in the mid-1960s, he made the, the suggestion that as long as we could continue making smaller and smaller printed circuit boards, effectively every two years, computing power would double. And Moore's law has continued since then. I think it's just recently moved out to around about three years. But effectively, it means if you extrapolate from that, it means that probably in around about 150 years, not even taking into account quantum computing, that we would be able to simulate, we would be able to create ancestor sims. The idea that we would create a simulation like um, Second Life or whatever we want to call it or No Man's Sky which is the big thing that's coming out now have you heard about No Man's Sky? No I haven't actually No Man's Sky there are there are it's it's a computer pro, it's a computer game and it's in space and it it is it, it is self-contained and it's self-creative and every second it's creating new worlds within the simulation there is there is quantillions of planets all of which can be discovered using No Man's Sky. And No Man's Sky is designed in such a way that you can use an Oculus Rift. So you're in virtual reality. So you're wearing an Oculus Rift headset Mm -hmm. and you're in this virtual reality and you're exploring planets that have been created by the simulation that no human being has created and no other human being has visited. This is mind-blowing stuff. But going back to the idea of the simulation argument is that, and it's, it's an application of logic that says that Human beings, if we do not destroy ourselves in the future, 
if we don't have a nuclear war or whatever, we will develop massive computing power. Because, of course, people argue and say, well, computers themselves can't be big enough. Well, computers don't need to use mechanistic things. You know, this is the argument a computer is anything that can play with a computer is anything that can play with data and digital data. You know, it's like just zero and one twenty. Yeah, it could be a network. Like a brain. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So the idea is if we survive, we will probably choose to create these ancestor simulations. The reason being that human beings, if they can do something, they will. In which case they would want to populate the ancestor simulations with sims. And they would be able to recreate history. And they would place within the history people. Now, the question is, could they make those people sentient? Could they make those people within the sim, sim, within the sim self-referentially conscious? It's called or does that the, the happen sub- automatically? Or it could. Now, this is the, called the substrate problem, which is the idea of if you have sufficient processing power, will there be some point where consciousness just automatically comes out of the system? Because we have to argue this is what's happened with our own brains. As our brains have evolved, there must have been a point where the addition of one molecule or one piece of information was enough to make something non-sentient effectively made of inanimate matter, which when it comes down to it, that's what atoms and molecules are, suddenly becomes self-referential and can evolve into being something that becomes so evolved it can question what atoms are themselves. In other words, it's questioning what it's made of. Now, if that is the case, the, sim, the sims within the simulation will be self-aware. Now, if they are self-aware, it is perfectly reasonable to conclude that you could recreate somebody's life and have them remember that life within the simulation. So suddenly we are having existing in a simulation. Now, in the end chapter of my, my book, uh, Opening the Doors of Perception, I extrapolate from this and I say, imagine a scenario that you've got an Oculus Rift headset on, which is pro- which is program which is running a program which is a virtual reality three dimensional program that you can walk within and move around. Mm-hmm. You are you are enclosed in a bodysuit, which effectively has tactile feedback. So when you move your hands within the glove, you see a hand within the simulation mm-hmm. that copies your movements. If you move your head round, you can walk look look all the way around yourself. On top of that, you'll have stereo speakers which will reproduce sound. So you are completely embedded in the simulation. But this is my trick. I turn around and say, now imagine that you are placed into a simulation of your life, a reproduced simulation that contains all the data to reproduce from the moment of the birth to your moment of your death. But on top of that, you then take a drug which wipes your memories clean and go into the sim. (laughs) And now within the sim, as we know with certain drugs like DMT, which I write about, and ayahuasca and various other entheogens and psychoactric substances, time dilates. When you're in these, these altered states of consciousness, time doesn't matter anymore. So you could argue that in a split second, you could be in a simulation of your whole life and live a whole life. Now, in my first book, I argued that the brain could generate this. And I I do some of the neurochemistry of how this could be facilitated. But I think it's more, more complex than that. I think that we're all existing in simulations of our own lives, in which case the simulations contain the outcome of every decision we could possibly make. 
as it is in a first-person computer game, isn't it? You play a first-person computer game, all the decisions you make on the screen with your on-screen sprite, you decide, I use the analogy of Laura Croft, Laura Croft, because that was one of the, the programs I used to play. You start the game, bing, there's a little, a little sprite on the screen, which is a little human being, Lara Croft, and she just is born the moment you switch the game on. She has no memories. Now imagine that she's sentient in some way. She has no memories. It's the moment of her birth. She starts running down a corridor because you're making her run down the corridor and a monster comes out and kills her. She dies. You go back to the start of the game as the game player and create a new Lara with a new set of memories that are starting from that point. She goes down the corridor, but this time you as the game player can somehow make her move and move away from the area of danger and down another corridor, which she gets killed again. And you go back to the start of the game. Now, I believe that this is what our life is. I believe that we have our higher self, which you call our daemon, and the daemon is our game player. The daemon is, the daemon is playing a, our game within the simulation, and we are the on-screen sprite, something I call the Eidolon. In which case, we can live our lives over and over and over again. We can fulfill all our dreams. If we listen to our daemon, the little voice in the head that sometimes warns us, we all get this. I'll guarantee there'll be people out there nodding and saying, this guy is a real weirdo, but he's, he's nailed it. <laughs> the idea that, you know, sometimes you get a sensation, you meet somebody, and for some reason there's this real, I don't like this person, stay away. In my book, The Daemon, A Guide to Our Extraordinary Secret Self, I had various people write for me from around the world who'd had these experiences whereby a voice in their head had warned them of upcoming danger. One guy, his arm actually moved the steering wheel of his car out of the way as a big tanker truck came around the corner. He'd have been killed at that point, but something got him out of the way. Another guy was a soldier in Rhodesia, well, Zimbabwe now, but Rhodesia in uh, the late 1960s, and he was at the top of um, uh, uh, an armoured vehicle. He was, he was in front of a shock uh, machine gun. They came around a corner, and as they came around a corner in a place called Mount Darwin in Nyasaland, as he came around the corner, a voice said, ambush, ambush, duck, duck, and he didn't. So something pushed him out of the seat into the, the webbing, the camouflage webbing, breaking his finger. And as he fell, a machine gun ripped into the seat. It would have hit him in the throat, the stomach and the groin. It would have killed him instantly. That voice saved his life and knew something was going to happen. He then told me that after that, this voice in his head was always in his life and it could move his body. And get this, he emigrated to America and he told me he was walking across a factory floor one day carrying a cup of coffee. And as he was carrying the cup of coffee, his left hand came up and went over the top of the cup of coffee as a blob of oil came from the ceiling roof and hit his hand. His daemon had stopped oil getting in his coffee. It's that powerful. So and if, sorry, go on. Well, well how does, how does, uh, I wanted you to continue that thought. So if, keep going, if. if okay. So, so what then happened was this, 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 the, the channels of communication, the doors of perception, my new book, are open for certain individuals and the daemon can speak to them, can communicate with them. So in other words, there are some of us who go through our lives with no sensation that we are a dual being, that there is something else guiding right, us. Right. 
Okay, so how does how does the how does the OBE, the NDE, the lucid dreaming, that other dimension that we enter through that? Like your your viewpoint of OBE is obviously switched at some point. It was just quite cynical to begin with. Now you might realize that with all this evidence, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that shows that it's not just an internal experience. Something, you know, something extended outside the brain is happening with with the consciousness. So how does that all fit in with the simulation theory? Well, if it's a simulation, it's all data. Isn't it? So it's you're, all you're, you're just it's all data. You're just in a you're different in, dimension of that simulation, or yeah, you're you're within the simulation. So in other words, there is a there is we we believe that we are brain embodied, that we are somehow located within our brains, but of course we're not. If we're within a simulation, we are given the illusion of being embodied because that's how the computer program works. But your fingers are the things you are looking at are digital information. They're not they're digital information. It's digital. So therefore, when you look around you, all you're looking around is a simulation. So therefore, under certain circumstances, you can move within the simulation as you can in Second Life. In Second Life, you can fly above your body. You can view. I don't know if you've ever played Second Life, but it's a simulation where people from around the world it's a community. There's hundreds of thousands of people on this in this simulation. They have simulated worlds on it. You can hover above your body in exactly the way people describe they do in near-death experiences. Hmm. You, can, you, can, you can go somewhere else. You can choose in Second Life to go somewhere else instantaneously, and you're then there in that location. So, and it's a yeah, sorry. So, so the way that works, then it's like you could even take things like remote viewing and pile it in there as well, because why would you ever have to go outside of your brain if time's not linear anyway? You don't actually exactly. have to go to fucking the desert to see the compound. You can just know that it's there. Exactly. Now, the thing is, I, I did a great deal of research on remote viewing um, when I wrote my book, The Outer Body Experience. I have, I have great issues with remote viewing for exactly the same reasons I said earlier. It's, again, people claiming they can do it like that. They can do it because they can do it. Nobody can do it. There is no evidence I've ever found, and if there's anybody out there who has evidence, I'd love to hear of it, of anybody who has at will got out of their body, gone somewhere else, got information, brought it back and shared it with other people. It has never happened. Ingo Swan claimed he did. He didn't. Okay. There are other individuals who are part of Project Stargate who make all these incredible claims. What I do is I go back to the source material. Whenever somebody makes a claim, I go back to the original material, to the original documentation. And it's not ever as they make it out to be. For instance, it's claimed that Ingo Swan saw the, um, the rings of Jupiter. He didn't. If you actually look what he, he said, he described that there were kind of rings coming from the surface of Jupiter. He also saw mountains on the surface of Jupiter, which is very, very clever because mountains don't exist on Jupiter. Jupiter is a gas giant. But people forget that. They don't look into what Ingo Swan actually said when he said he saw these things. He saw volcanoes on Jupiter poking through the clouds. Impossible. There are none. But what I'm interested in is that I believe that he was in some kind of state and he was confusing Jupiter with Io. Because Io is one of the moons of Jupiter and is the most volcanic structure in the universe and in, in the in the solar system, and he didn't know that. So here we have some kind of transposition of information. 
So Did, there, there is something curious going on doesn't here. Tar I, I readily... Doesn't Targ and and, uh, and put off and them don't they have enough evidence for what was I, happening with Stargate? Like you know, Targ's not got in, that book, The Reality of ESP and Psychic Exploration and all that. I mean, not to convince me. I've been through that book with a fine tooth comb. And then, no, for, no. Uh, for instance, one of the things that the guys used to do was they would they would give somebody coordinates. Uh, geographic coordinates and they'd send somebody to the geographical coordinates and ask them what they could see in my book the out of the body experience i point out with anybody with even a modicum of knowledge of geography will have in their own mind a map of the world with the coordinates so if somebody turns around to me and gives me a particular set of coordinates i'll probably have a pretty good idea that it's going to be somewhere in the south atlantic and this is what happened. That's why they changed they, it to to not use geographical co coordinates right they just started using eight digit numbers right yeah, they tried that, but but effectively, for instance, on one of those, they, they he 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 was looking at Kerguelen, which is a French island in the, the South Atlantic, uh, Ingo Swan, and he said he could see uh, shack and some buildings and boats in the harbour. But effectively, there are only three or four islands in the South Atlantic there, and they're all going to look exactly the same. Hmm. You know? Yeah, I, I I know what you mean. It seems it seems pretty vague, but I, I was. You know, he, I was at a, a lecture by Paul Elder, who was he, he does a little, uh, he has a Monroe Institute uh, on Vancouver Island here. And he, he mentioned mm. a b bunch of evidence, too. I'd, I'd be interested to know if that was the same evidence that Targ talks about. or. Well, for yeah. instance, I've, I've asked direct questions about this evidence that the Monroe Institute had. Yeah. Uh, Tom Campbell uh, helped me with my book, The Out of the Body Experience. And yeah. in his book, My Big Toe, he claims that there was there was evidence that he and one of his associates used to get outside of their body at will and they would share experiences and they would come back and all this was recorded and the paperwork was all recorded and it's all all there so i asked tom can you send it to me they'd lost it oh you know come on you lose information like that yeah you don't lose information like that you know if if it was that powerful you'd have kept it because we're crying out for scientific proof on these things. You know, we are desperate people, writers like myself. I'm not, a, I'm not um, a cynic on these things. My logic is always prove it. And if you can prove it, I'm, I'm going to take your word for it. You know, I've got, you know, because I, I believe that these things do happen. You know, but what I don't believe is that somebody can at will do it. This is the difference. I believe that somebody can and will can find themselves located somewhere else in the simulation right, right. and they will see things. For instance, Robert Monroe, the things that happened to Robert Monroe were amazing. Robert Monroe worked with Charles Tart and he did a series of experiments with Charles Tart. And there was one time where Charles Tart phoned up Robert Monroe. He'd moved from where he used to live in the Midwest to a new house in California, which Robert Monroe had never seen. And he said, if you were in a dream state, Robert, Try and visit me in the new house and describe what it's like. And this is exactly what Bob Monroe did. He had a dream and he was uncannily accurate about the descriptions of Tart's new house. But he got the colour of the curtains wrong and the colour of the carpet. And there were various other things that were not quite right, which leads me to believe. And I concluded in that book that we in some way are creating our reality around us. And we also create our out-of-the-body experiences from some information we may have. And if it's a simulation and we are collapsing the wave function, the informational field, into point particles that build up the reality around us, there will be an area of subjectivity. And I think this is why we have a problem with out-of-the-body experiences, mm -hmm. why sometimes people get things wrong 
They don't get them wrong. They get them right in their in their simulation. They're right. But in the simulation of the people testing them, they're different. So there will be kind of overlaps. I was just going to say overlap. Yeah, there's an overlap of, of their personal reality and, and the other dimension. Yeah. Well, again, you know, sort of as um, as uh, uh, Tom Campbell says, you know, we are collapsing the wave function all the time with the act of observation. So therefore, the computer is only ever rendering for you what is in your eye view and what is your hearing and everything else. So behind your head is not being rendered in your part of the simulation. It does not need it to. Until it's you, only when until you, you look there. Rendered. So yeah, if you and pulled up rendered. a mirror, then the computer has to render it. That's kind of like inside the trees not being there until you cut into them and things like that. Correct. I mean, I mean, effectively, have you come across the work of Tom Campbell? Yeah, yeah, we almost that had him on. Toe? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so super. Yeah. You know, his big toe is absolutely amazing, but that's why I was so disappointed that he couldn't supply the evidence I needed because I, I engage with scientists all the time. I engage, I actively go out of my way to engage skeptics. I will actively go out <laughs> because, and they hate me. Well, that's another, but that's a frustrating part. I mean, there, it doesn't matter what kind of evidence you give them; they're they're not going to change their paradigm. Like it, something yeah. something big has to shift for that whole big s skeptic thing to change, right? I mean, even listening to your work and talking about hallucinations, and you know, now I've I've I watched a couple of debates with them and all that, and now they think that just because you can induce some sort of uh, artificial NDE experience or OBE experience, that that explains that. There's no such, well, there's no reality to it because it's all a hallucination. Well, this is this is the major point of my new book, and this is what I say to skeptics. Oh, right, it's an hallucination. Okay, so when I have an experience, it's an hallucination. When somebody shares that experience with me, it's a folie deux. When a group of people have a shared experience, it's collective um, delusions. <laughs> These are all labels. They're all labels. In other words, the only reason that you and I and everybody else believes that the external world is the way it is is because it's consensual, because we all see the same things. So they want it both ways, but they say it's an hallucination. I challenge them in the new book and I say, right, nice label hallucination. What's an hallucination? And then you start getting into very, very different grounds because, well, well, it's, it's something that's created in the brain. Created by what? For instance, one of the arguments I used at an event um, this last weekend, an hallucination is a very, very strange thing. For instance, in the book, I cite an example of the work by somebody called Ramachandran. Um, and one of his students, one of his, his patients, has a, an illusion of a monkey sitting on Ramachandran's lap. As he's talking to him, there's this monkey. Now, there are two hallucinations going on there. There's the hallucination of the monkey, but there's also the hallucination of extraction. Because in order for the monkey to be not see-through, opaque, it has to take out the, the information behind the monkey. Do you understand what I mean? If you see a ghost standing in front of you and you can't see the wall behind the ghost, the hallucination also involves taking out part of your information field. Mm. Now, that is intriguing. Countering this, you can argue that everything is an hallucination. Everything is stimulated by the brain internally. We never interface directly with reality. People who think we interface with reality are known generally. The general term for people is called naive realists. Everything you see is created by the brain, and it's created by the brain quite simply because it's logical. You look outside. What are you seeing? You're seeing electromagnetic energy, light bouncing off objects. 
The electromagnetic energy is actually made of tiny point particles called photons. By the way, photons travel at light speed, so there's no time for them, and they are point particles. They have no extension in space. So suddenly even the things that make up light are bloody weird because from their point of view, there is no time because if you know if you travel at the speed of light, time stops. So there's no time for them. And on top of that, they don't exist anywhere. They're literal point particles. They don't, they don't exist in three-dimensional space. But trillions of these things bounce off things and they get enter your eye and they go through your aqueous humano. Every time a photon hits a subatomic particle, it stimulates the subatomic particle to give up another photon. In other words, the photon that hits the subatomic particle is not the same photon that comes out the other side of the subatomic particle. So you have trillions of swappings of photons before it even gets to your retina. So the image is already not is gone. There's trillions of photons that had the image have gone. So the final photon that hits your retina, the retina then converts that electromagnetic signal into an electric impulse, which it then sends down the neurons of the brain to the darkest part of the brain in the back of your head. The retina has an image, it's postage stamp size, and it's inverted and bent. That signal is then sent to the back of the brain, to the visual cortex at the back of the brain, where something in there, something reconfigures the information that's been sent and creates the three-dimensional wraparound multicolored image that you see in front of you. That image is not outside. So if that image is not outside, what is outside? And I argue there is nothing outside because the simulation is downloaded into, is processed within the brain. And even the brain itself probably is questionable because, of course, subatomic particles are 99.999% empty space. And what empty space there is and what sort of particles there are there are only three or four types of quark and electrons. That's all there is. And quarks are literally just fluctuations in a field the zero point field. So when you start to go right in to ask the questions, of, so where is your hallucination now? Where is your hallucination gone? And the billion dollar question is, who is the perceiver of the hallucination? You know, because they never can answer that. They'll say there's an hallucination. But that means there is something inside your head that is perceiving the hallucination. So a group of people like Daniel Dennett and the Churchlands are known as eliminative materialists. They argue that there is nothing going on inside the brain. We're all fooling ourselves into thinking we're self-conscious. It's an hallucination. It's an illusion. The question is, and I ask this and I ask this of these scientists who say this, if something is capable of being fooled by something, it means that it is aware of the fact it is being fooled, which means it's aware. You cannot fool a stone into thinking anything because a stone is not a word. But effectively, they're arguing there is nothing inside us. It's all a big hall, a magical trick of mirrors. So we have nothing processing nothing. These are the questions I ask. And they, ne- they can't answer these. No, and that, that's getting pretty deep. I mean, you could even keep it at a real simpler level, which is that you've, what we've already talked about is there's, an, there's enough anecdotal evidence of separation that that it doesn't matter if it's a hallucination or not, that there's there's more going on. Like, it's not well, just an internal, internal hallucination. No, well, effectively, the, I argue that there is no separation. And there's no separation because well, everything it, is, is unitary. Yeah, what we I meant know, was we, outside the brain, like... 
Yeah, but if the brain is part of what is outside and inside, and everything's outside and inside, this is going back to the Kabbalah. It's going back to the concept of the Or Ein Sof, which comes from the 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 the, um, the, the, the ideas of the Jewish mystics. We have the holographic universe, the work of David Bohm, the idea of enfoldment. Enfoldment then explains things that, again, and why scientists hate me is, I know what I'm talking about. Like, for instance, one of the great mysteries they have is the results of an experiment that took place in 1981 in Paris by a guy called Dalibard and Aspect. And they did an experiment which proved non-locality which proved that if you take one subatomic particle and do one thing to it, another one that's been entangled with it will react instantaneously. There is no, there's no message going between them, mm-hmm. which violates Einstein's idea that information has to travel at the speed, can only travel at the speed of light and it can't go any faster. We know that particles are entangled. This is how quantum computing works, because they'll be working with entangled particles. Mm-hmm. Does Gravity a guy called works Anton- that way too, right? Does what? Gravity? gravity works that way too, right? Gravity, well, the thing is with gravity waves and trying to find gravity waves, that again is a huge mystery because everybody thinks they understand gravity and nobody has a clue about gravity. Nobody you know, nobody knows what the, the field carrier for gravity is. We have a hypothetical thing called a graviton, which they supposedly think they try to detect. In fact, there's a graviton detector device in southern Germany that has been te- detecting other things that they don't want to detect. Like this <laughs> thing has detected the granulation of the simulation, the hologram that's the universe and again if you don't believe me on this i'm sure you guys do but if there's anybody out there that has a problem with it check this out there's a guy called Mal- Juan Maldacana that's been working on this for years and there's the peri- work at the perimeter institute in in i think it's arizona uh, and there's a guy called Wade, wayne horgan and horgan has been working on this for years there was a headline on the front of scientific american about six years ago saying are you a hologram this is how advanced they've become now in understanding the nature of holograms. This is a simulation. And in the end of The Immortal Mind, Laszlo and I discuss this in great detail. You know, we go on exactly about the work of people at the Racker Institute uh, who've been working with this. There's something, again, called the Entangled Cosmic Matrix. There is the zero-point field. All this is evidence that we are not even at first base at understanding. We have dark energy. We have dark matter. You know, there is this kind of t- this is this this feeling of hubris that scientists have at the moment where they make these huge announcements that they understand everything. They mm-hmm. don't understand everything. They haven't got the vaguest clue. Most science at the moment is like it's 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 it, they have one thing they don't understand. So they come up with a hypo- hypothesis, which then is something else and something else. And they're just as crazy as any kind of just so stories. But they have to come up with these explanations. I mean, for instance, dark energy and dark matter. They don't actually know what dark matter and dark energy is. It is the only because their science doesn't work to explain certain things that are seen in the revolve, how galaxies revolve. Galaxies revolve in a, in a peculiar way. And they don't understand why they, the further out you get, the slower they revolve or something like that. And it makes no sense unless there's more matter around. We but just, nobody knows. We just had Wall Thornhill on from um, Thun, like Thunderbolt's uh, project and the Electric Universe Theory. Have you ever mm, I've come across it, but I don't know a great deal. Yeah, it's, uh, it was pretty interesting. Uh, very interesting about how gravity doesn't really play as big of a role as, as everybody says. What did Ed Leedscon say? If you move the moon like a couple inches to the right or the left, its polarity would change and it would come slamming into Earth. Oh, yeah? Well, well, 
Well, well, that's the the issue with gravity itself. I mean, gravity. When you compare gravity to the 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 other forces, the weak force and the strong force, it's it's so weeny. It's untrue. You know, it, it it's and it's spooky action at a distance. Mm-hmm. You know, gravity is spooky action at a distance. Nobody actually understands how gravity does its effects across empty space. They don't know. They don't know how gravity sends its messages across. But then again, for years, they didn't understand how light supposedly as a wave could cross the vacuum of space between the sun and the earth. It was impossible. If it was a wave, it needed something to wave within what they call the luminiferous ether, yeah. literally the light carrying ether. And of course, they, the, the Mitchelson-Morley experiment disproved that. So suddenly, where they had a problem, but they were still in 19, 1894, they were making these incredibly glib statements that, you know, we only we, we know understand the world to such an extent, we only need to fine tune it to a couple more decimal points, you know. And then suddenly there were these just these little problems they had on the horizon, the photoelectric effect, um, the ultraviolet catastrophe. Um, these little things that just didn't, uh, hydrogen, the, the, the lines within hydrogen spectra, these things didn't fit in with their science. And in 1900, in December 1900, Max Planck comes along and does a speech in, in Berlin. And he turns around and he says, the only way you can make this work is saying that matter and energy come in quanta. They're, they're in discrete quanta, little packages. And even he found it impossible to believe and then in 1905, Einstein comes along and proves that light can, tra- uh, light can travel across the distance because it's it's a wave. But it's a wave and a particle, depending on whether it's been looked at or not. <laughs> and what's luck doing the looking, you know? Have you ever given any uh, thought to the idea that consciousness is somehow, or at least the illusion of consciousness or self-awareness is somehow required, even maybe at like the cellular level, just for just for everything to keep sort of trudging on like i kind of kind of equate it to like the micro and the macro of how you know you look around the universe and it kind of looks the same as if we look down at uh, cells and things like that like i guess what i'm getting at like are the cells inside our body are they getting up today and going to work and if they didn't have that little fucking hologram playing in their cellular heads do i not wake up well, that's exactly it, isn't it? And indeed, the whole idea of the, the 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 head itself and the brain. I don't know if you're aware, but um, there are little worms called planaria, and planaria are quite strange worms in the sense that normally, if you cut a worm's head off, it dies. But planaria don't; they grow a new head. And it was decided a few years ago. This is an interesting idea. Let's teach a group of planaria worm. To, to do something that planaria don't like. And what they did was, and it's quite intriguing, planaria really like liver for some reason, but they don't like bright light. So what they did was they placed some liver underneath some bright light and they trained planaria to overcome their fear of the light because they'd, they'd show them that was liver there and they'd have the munchies and they'd eat the liver. And what they then did was chopped the head off the planaria, making sure there was no neurons, no brain matter left. And they put, over a period of six weeks, the planaria grow a new head. Guess what? The planaria made their way, got over the fear of light and went to the liver. Now, this means when everybody turns around and says that you cannot know anything without a brain, sorry, that's not that's not right. The brain processes information like a radio. It is a receiver. The field of consciousness is outside and part of the simulation. 
we pick up information from there. In fact, it's arguably to say that consciousness is all across the body as well. You know, there is somebody and I did a talk this weekend pointed out to me and I was aware of this, but I'd forgotten about it was the mystery of individuals who have heart transplants mm-hmm. and they're, they're, they change. They become different people. They actually start to reflect the taste of the person whose heart had been donated. <laughs> Does that mean consciousness is in the heart? Yeah, I've even heard I of argue- memories. Well, exactly. And of course, memories, memories, they don't understand. There's no one location of memories in the brain. Memories are distributed. A guy called Paul, Carl Pribram in the 1940s and 1950s. No, was it Carl Pribram? No, it wasn't Carl Pribram. It was um, his tutor, whose game also began with P. Uh, was it Lashley? No, it was Lashley. And Lashley spent years trying to find what he called the engram, the location of memory in the brain. And he used to extract and cut pieces of the brains out of animals. And whatever bits he cut out, they still remembered things. And he came to the conclusion in the end that memory didn't exist in the brain. And David Bohm and and Carl Pribram have argued that the brain, memory is distributed across the brain. It is located everywhere across the brain. It works non-locally. And in my new book, I I have come up with um, the communication channels by which this works. It's something called glial cells in the brain. We are preoccupied with neurons. We believe that the neurons are what sends messages across the brain. It's not. It's the glial cells. You know, when people turn around and say we only use 15% of our brain, that comes from the fact that 15% of our brain is made of neurons. The rest of it is made of these things called glial cells. Now, glial cells, it's recently been discovered, communicate non-locally. They communicate instantaneously, which means that memory can be distributed across the brain, which in turn will solve something called a binding problem, which again, if you ever want a neurologist and somebody who thinks they know it all to start spitting into their beer and twitching, talk to them about the binding problem because they don't like it. There's two things they don't like. They don't like the binding problem and they don't and they don't like wave particle duality because they've got no answers to them. But the binding problem is how come everything, there are different parts of the brain. Your brain is now processing my voice in one. No, I'll give a better example. If you see somebody bouncing a ball down a street, one part of your brain is processing how the bounce moves. Another part of your brain is processing the color and the various other things. These are in different parts of the brain. But you see a red bouncing ball. It's impossible. You cannot see a red bouncing ball. You can see the red or the bouncing in the different parts of the brain. So it means they must communicate instantaneously. And this is what the glial cells do. Sounds like Sheldrake stuff too when we talk about memories and cellular memories or like of the morphic resonance, right? Like the, you know, it's just memories coming from the field at some point. Yeah, the field itself, I mean, uh, I've met Rupert a couple of times and, you know, his whole concept of morphic resonance, I think, resonates with me. Um, I don't think he quite goes far enough. Uh, For instance, um, one of the guys I've met a couple of times now is Professor of Molecular Biology at the University of Surrey, just down the road here, a guy called John Joe McFadden. And McFadden is doing some fascinating stuff on um, consciousness being in an electromagnetic field around the neurons. Uh, And this is intriguing because this is the first time that a well-respected scientist, he's just written a book with Jill, Jill, Jim Al-Khalili. And what they're doing is they're now moving neurology and neurochemistry into quantum physics. You know, there is people like uh, Stuart Hammerhoff, mm-hmm. you come across Stuart Hammerhoff yeah. and uh, Roger Penrose and the orchestrated objective reduction, or OR. Again, they're arguing the same thing, that the microtubules in the, in the, the structures within the brain actually bring up information from the information field. Now, Laszlo wow. and I argue the, the information field is zero-point energy. 
Um, and zero point energy is a form of energy that is manifest at at just about absolute zero, you know, 273.14 or 17 degrees. Uh, and it is there is, should be no energy there. In other words, if you cool something down like helium-3 or something down to just above absolute zero, because you can never cool anything down to absolute zero, there is still energy there. There is energy coming up from below. And this energy is considered to be zero-point energy. And zero-point energy is the opposite of a vacuum. There's a plenum. There's energy everywhere. There's a guy called Bernie H, H Professor Bernie Haish, who is um, – uh, he's either at the perimeter or he's one of the institutes in California, I think. And Bernie Haish has been working on zero point energy. Um, and they did have a grant from the American government to find find ways of drawing up zero point energy from the zero point field. So, again, you know, this is not wacko science. And I get very annoyed when you get individuals out there whose knowledge of science self-evidently is not as great as they think it is. And they come up against people like me and it's, woo, you know. Because, sorry, I do know my stuff. And yeah. if I'm incorrect, I, I stand corrected. I'm more than happy because I don't have a belief system. You know, I'm not channeling this stuff from the planet Tharg. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not teaching anybody anything. Most, all I'm saying is that this is the information as it stands. That's the thing. Most of our guests are like that. Like, when we're talking about all these crazy things. Like, most of our guests are like, look, look, at, look it up yourself. Prove me wrong. Like, you're not dogmatic about, about what you know. It's, it's like, it's refreshing, right? It's kind of being in the middle and... And looking at it objectively, but being open-minded. Yeah. Some people are open-minded as long as you just stay open-minded in their, yeah, in in their, their little, little paradigm. Yeah. So, yeah, as long as long as you're not so open-minded that your brain falls out. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of people that happens. So obviously the, the new book, The Doors of Perception, is going to be a kind of a redux of Aldous Huxley's work. Um, it is. What do you think about uh, Aldous Huxley's other book, The Brave New World, and kind of the... Uh, the path we're on right now. Yeah, no, I, 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 I find Huxley, Huxley an absolutely fascinating character. Um, and clearly Brave New World was telling us many things. Uh, and in fact, as an aside, you probably know, I wrote the latest biography of the American science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, <laughs> uh, which is one of my previous books. And of course, Philip K. Dick and Aldous Huxley both had a very similar worldview because, you know, Dick very much believed in the dystopia. Uh, and I very much feel that Philip K. Dick met, well, I argue that Philip K. Dick was precognitive and I present evidence for that. But I'm also intrigued that Philip K. Dick seemed to have um, probably predicted um, Donald Trump in the sense that in one of his books, he has this incredibly crazed dictator-like president. Of course, he believed it was Nixon and he based it upon Nixon. But um, it clearly, Maybe you know, it was Trump Hillary. Is probably it. <laughs> or Hillary, yeah. yeah. God is amazing. You know, you have a nation of 250 million people and you have those two. I just, I uh, does my head in. Yeah. Just does my head in, really yeah. does. But Aldous Huxley, I mean, in the book, I have a whole section on Aldous Huxley, why he wrote Opening the Doors of Perception, his experiences with mescaline and peyote, what he meant by opening the doors of perception, um, his subsequent experiences, in fact, how the mescaline and peyote was was brought down from Canada. Do you know this? He got his his mescaline from Canada. No, I didn't know that. There I, is a, there is a hospital in Saskatchewan. There's another wall uh, coming. What? <laughs> now we'll have what? a Canadian wall. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Well, that's going to be an awful long one, isn't it? Well, it will be. It'll be like the movie. Um, was it Team America? 
That's right. Yeah, world, world police. Yeah. yeah, world police. Yeah. What was those two characters that spoke supposedly spoke Canadian but just sounded English? Oh, it's the like, two singers yeah. that caused the war. Yeah. Terrence and Philip. <laughs> Oh, terrific, terrific. It was an absolute great movie. I saw that on a, on a transatlantic flight. It kept increased me up. But um, going back uh, to Saskatchewan, the the largest building in the British Empire was in, in southern Saskatchewan, and it was this huge mental institution run by a guy called Humphrey Osmond. Hmm. And Humphrey Osmond had been doing some fascinating experiments with people with schizophrenia and everything else, and he'd found that when they take mescaline, they calm down a bit. Because he argued that mescaline recreates, opens up the doors of perception, whereas if somebody who's already got their own, the doors of perception wide open, which schizophrenics seem to have, it, it actually closes them a little bit. <laughs> and Huxley came across this and contacted him and said, you know, can you get me some of this stuff and bring it down? Because there's a conference down, it was 1954, I think, and there was a conference down in, in California. And Humphrey Osmond, one of his associates, flew down with this stuff. And this is what he then took. And of course, his experiences expanded his mind to such an extent he came to conclude that the brain is an attenuator. The brain excludes information. In fact, the brain only gives us a very small amount of the informational field that we could gain. And of course, you know, I write about dimethyltryptamine and the pineal gland uh, and the way in which I argue in the new book that the pineal gland um, actually distills from chemicals from melatonin distills dmt within the brain yeah, yeah. And, Me- metatonin and you're, I think you're metatonin yeah. that's correct yeah you know yeah. stuff so, so but yeah, before we leave uh, huxley did you come across any connections with the cia that he had i mean there's people talking about all this conspiracy around uh, the whole psychedelic movement and people like huxley and all this how they're connected to the intelligence agencies I don't know. I didn't come across that. No, I didn't. But then again, I only read his material. I didn't read about right, right. him, per yeah. se, in the background. So, yeah. But that's an interesting idea because, you know, would it would it have been a grand experiment? You know, did uh, Timothy Leary and everybody else and Abby Hoffman and everybody else that was involved were being used as a tool for a grand experiment to see just how you can change the psychology of, a, of, a, uh, of the culture, people? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you know, is it man took and everything else and uh, Agent Orange and everything else. Yeah, it's it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. yeah. Well, the first book influenced the greatest rock band of all time. So hopefully of the course. second one will bring another one around. Who's that? Is that well, let's hope so. Doors, let's oh, come on. Jesus. The Lizard King, Jim Morrison. <laughs> in fact, Jim Morrison um, argued that uh, he had two personalities in his head, his daemon. He was very influenced by his daemon. Uh, and again, if you read his biography, you'll you'll find in some of his writings, you know, That's he, no one he here was, gets out alive, right? Yeah. Oh, well, no one gets out here alive. That was. Yeah. Was that him? Or was that? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? I have because it on the shelf. Pers- you want to grab that, Graham? Who wrote that? All oh, right. Who wrote that? Yeah, no one. Gets, OK, I'll just grab it here. <sighs> the celebrated biography of Jim Morrison by Jerry Hopkins and Daniel Sugarman. Ah, that's it. Yes. The reason is that uh, there's another associate of mine who's written, who's updated a biography of um, of Morrison, which is even more interesting. But Morrison was an interesting character, and some of his lyrics, you know, the end is probably one of the most. The first time you hear the end, you never forget it. You know, because it's wow, absolutely incredible. So, so we we should get into a little bit more about the doors of perception. But I did want to ask you a couple of questions that might end up being, you know, part of your book. But, but ways to uh, 
ways to influence um, these doors to open. Like, let's say, you know, you've talked about this uh, lucid dreaming light device or lucid light yeah. device, actually, which I'm really interested. Like, I remember you talking about this years ago and I was just blown away by it. And now I believe that our guys in Calgary at the Float Life are going to be, I think they're going to be buying these light machines. And there's a couple different types now that actually like mm. in, in um, induce some sort of uh, altered state. And then also what your opinion is about DMT and actually like smoking it compared to like just taking it uh, in an ayahuasca form. Or treating. Okay. Well, we should treat schizophrenia with fluoride. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because that would certainly stop the, um, it would certainly uh, calcify the pineal gland if they did. When I get um, schizophrenia ground, just cram a fucking tube of Colgate down my throat and <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll, probably, you'll probably be... Um, your world will probably change, but you'll have you'll have no cavities, you know, which is uh, which is fairly good, isn't it? So what we were doing, we we're trying to breed people that um, had calcified pineal glands but very good teeth. Uh, so when they chew themselves out of this reality and find themselves in the other, like uh, Truman does at the end of the Truman Show, he could use his teeth to eat his way through the reality. Yeah, interesting idea. Um, in terms of um, the lucid light device, Lucia. Um, yeah, amazing amazing piece of kit invented by a guy called Dirk Prokol and um, uh, Engelbert Winkler uh, and Engelbert Winkler. Both these guys, one's a consultant neurologist and one is a consultant psychiatrist. And they, they pooled their resources around about 10 years ago, 15 years ago um, to create this particular device. And I've been aware of the device and I was one of the, the first people to try it out when it first came out I went over to, I was invited over to Switzerland to try it out and again I wasn't expecting anything but it blew my mind um, it was sensational but what I think it generates I think it facilitates the again facilitates the pineal gland releasing dimethyltryptamine oh, okay. now Okay, now there will be people out there that will be jumping up and down as they normally do, and they say he's talking a load of crap. Dimethyltryptamine has not been found in the brain. Wake up call, lads. It has. Cannabinoids haven't been found in the human body. Yeah, well, we know that DMT has been found in the liver. We know it's in the lining of the stomach. We know it's in the uh, the spinocerebral fluid. But get this, there's a lady called Jimo Borgijin at the University of um, Mini... um, uh, Jimo? Jimo Borgijin? Jimo Borgijin, G-I-M-O-B-O-R-G-I-J-I-G-I-N. And she's at the University of uh, oh, Michigan, okay? And together with another guy, they did a series of experiments with rats. And they found that the pineal gland of live rats has inside it DMT, okay? Now, we know that DMT is, 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 is fairly close chemically to melatonin. Mm-hmm. And we know that melatonin is created by the pineal gland. So therefore, it's not too strange to jump to the conclusion that the pineal gland itself generates DMT. Now, on top of this, it would explain one or two strange discoveries over recent years. And again, if anybody wants to check this out, so there's things called the trace amine associated receptors, TARS receptors. These seem to have been designed to work with dimethyltryptamine. So, And there's something else called the sigma-1 receptor. Now, if receptor sites are designed to work with dimethyltryptamine, it is logical to conclude that dimethyltryptamine is a neurotransmitter. 
And if it's a neurotransmitter, it means we've evolved to generate dimethyltryptamine within our own minds, within our own pineal glands. So as Rick Strassman argues, this could be evidence that dimethyltryptamine is in fact our, our reality modulator. This is this is the the in simulation substance, but of course the substance itself would be part of the simulation, and that's one of the questions that I always ask myself. But if it's simulation, DMT is part of the simulation, but it's a facilitator as well. You know, you, you start getting yourself into all kinds of avenues of um, mystery. But clearly, if DMT now, I argue that there's more evidence to this because there is something a technique called the Kakara Mudra. And the Kakara Mudra is something that uh, mystics used in India. And what it is, oh. is tr- training yourself to actually place your tongue, flicking your tongue back to the back of your throat. And when you are in altered states of consciousness or very deep states of meditation, you will taste something called the divine nectar. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of an acidic taste at the back of the throat. I argue that that acidic taste at the back of the throat is in fact DMT. <laughs> I do the argument because the uh, epi, epi, epiaphesis, I think it's called, something like that. And what it is, is at the um, 49th day of gestation, when the baby's mm. in the womb, the pineal gland and the pituitary body are a single unit, and it's located at the back of the throat. After 49th day of gestation, it starts to move up to the center of the brain, and they split off, and they leave a little duct called Rathke's pouch. Now, I believe what is taking place, and it's not just me. I mean, Beach Barrett. Well, the, this the, other Bo- guy the Buddhists talking. say that this is when the soul enters the body, isn't it? Spot on. Absolutely where like, I was going. To the day. like Yeah, to the day. The 49th day of gestation is the point in which the, bo- the soul enters the body. Now, this cannot be coincidence. Because, of course, the Buddhists are the people, particularly the Bon tradition of Buddhism. Because the guys who invented the lucid light device... This is a nice aside, and it's really circularity here. They took the lucid light device to Larsa, okay, many years ago with in, with with uh, Professor Haroldson, the guy that walked, worked with Indrid, Indridison, who I started the discussion with. It was only years later that I put these bits together because I didn't realize it was the same Haroldson. And they went over to Larsa, and they, they gave um, trips on the lucid light to individuals who had been trained in something called dream yoga which is part of the Bon tradition. Mm-hmm. Just as an aside, the Bon tradition is the shamanic tradition of the Tibetan plateau. It's part of Buddhism now, but it used to be an independent tradition. So Bon Buddhism is a kind of mixture of shamanism and, and Buddhism. Now, the guys, when they took it, the, 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 the shamans up there, when they took it, said within 10 minutes, they were having the kind of experiences it takes them years to train themselves yeah. into doing. But what then happened, and this is a beautiful aside, is that Dirk and um, and uh, Engelbert the next day went for a wander around the palace they were in, and they found a room, and inside that room were glass cases. And inside the glass cases were huge ossified objects, elephants' pineal glands. There were pineal glands from lots of animals that had been there for centuries. Clearly, this is the secret that everybody, every single tradition of mysticism has known. The pineal gland is the attunement. It is the thing that gives us access to alternate states of consciousness. So then we have to ask the question about this problem of ossification of the pineal gland, where the fluoride ossifies it, because hmm. we know that the pineal gland generates something called pineal, pineal salt, which are small, tiny crystals. 
And the crystals within the pineal gland are piezoelectric. They can actually generate images. Now, this is where you're starting to read. And this is where I genuinely believe I'm the only person on the planet that has joined these dots. There are people playing around with the pineal gland. There are writers talking about quantum physics. There are writers talking about um, uh, um, the ideas of the holographic nature of reality. Mm -hmm. I'm the only writer that's putting it all together and saying, look, guys, put it together in a big jigsaw puzzle. And what do you get? You get the pineal portal. You get the idea that the pineal gland is processing this information and it's downloading it and and it's facilitated by the pineal gland. Wow. So that's, is this all part of the the new book then? Yeah. The new book, the new book pulls it all together. The last chapter in the new book, I pulled together the simulation argument, the pineal gland as a facilitator, the opening doors of perception, the, the new, the neuroglial network, I pull it together because in the book I discuss individuals whose doors of perception are open. I talk about people who have classic migraine. I talk about people who have temporal lobe epilepsy, people who have autism, people who have Asperger's disease, people who have schizophrenia. All these illnesses can be linked. They all have overlap areas. They all have areas where you can have... Uh, schizophrenia overlapping into temporal lobe epilepsy. You have temporal lobe epilepsy overlapping into into, uh, migraine. These are the same thing. These are not illnesses. These are chemical processes in the brain that are opening up the doors of perception. Because the further along you call what I call my Huxleyan spectrum, the more the doors are opened. And not only that, I've got evidence in this book. I've interviewed people like Gimo Borogi, uh, sorry, um, Anita Mujani, mm-hmm. who had the most amazing NDE. I've interviewed and discussed, and he helped me with the chapter on him, um, Eben Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got the foreword is written by Whitley Strieber, because Strieber, as you know, had the most amazing alien encounters. I argue that alien encounters, encounters with greys, they're all linked. They're all part of the same phenomenon. I talk about the 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 something fascinating called um, uh, oh, there's a syndrome where where elderly people see tiny people. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, they, when they have when they have, I should uh, know it. when they have the uh, what's what's the disease when you're old they uh, dementia. Well, they yeah, when they have Alzheimer's and they start seeing little people around, yeah. That's yeah, fascinating. my mother. Get this, my mother. Um, and this is this is this is the story that stimulated my interest in this. Is um, my mother was lost one of her eyes with malignant melanoma about thirty years ago, so she's partially sighted. And she was mo- walking onto the village that she lived with my auntie one day, and my auntie stopped to tie her two lace. And as my auntie went down to tie her shoelace, my mother looked up, and over one of the local factories, she saw a UFO. She'd never known what a UFO was, but she described to me a kind of disc moving with smoke around it and vibrating. And then it shot off towards um, towards North, North Wales. She tells me about this and I calm her down. I say, Mum, it's it probably just an hallucination. You probably didn't see anything. Four days later, she rings me back in hysteria. She'd woken up in the middle of the night. She lives alone. My father died years ago. She wakes up in the middle of the night to see her door open. The door is open. She looks towards the door and a set of spindly fingers come round the door. And this little creature with huge, she described this distinctly, huge black eyes, two little holes for a nose and a slit for a mouth. And it looked at her and blinked and dodged behind. She had seen a grey. My mother would know a grey if it got bitter on the backside. 
But the interesting thing is she then started developing seeing ghosts. She started seeing children all around her. Mm. She had the syndrome that has escaped my brain at the moment. I'm 62 now. My brain is going. <laughs> That's the only thing to... you've forgotten, so it's, we'll give you a break. Yeah, and it's unusual for me because normally I will remember <laughs> it. It will come to me. Yeah. But I believe that what is happening there, she was in a state of REM intrusion. She was in a state of sleep paralysis whereby the, um, the, the, the dimethyltryptamine that is released to facilitate dreams starts to impose upon somebody who's semi-awake. And what happens is the other realities that we go to when we have out-of-the-body experiences overlaps into this reality, into consensual reality, and entities can cross over from one reality to the other. My next book is going to be called Through the Doors of Perception. I've already got a book deal for this new book, and it will take this further, and I'm hoping to get Jacques Vallée to write the introduction for this, because this is where Whitley Strieber because Whitley interviewed me for his radio station and it blew him away. And he said, my God, you've explained my experiences. Yeah. You've explained what happened to me. So, so, so do you get into, do you get into decalcifying the, de, uh, the pineal gland at all? Or, or um, I, the other question I have is between those lucid light devices, is there any, like there's a few brands now. Do you, do you, do you recommend uh, trying a certain brand at all? Cause I mean, these are, these are coming into like our local float tank uh, places and stuff like that. People are starting to, you know, start doing this commercially. Um, what has happened? What has happened here is the, the, effectively the, the, the whole concept of light devices is not new. I mean, a guy called Brian Geisen was doing this work in the 1950s. He he worked with um, various individuals, um, part of the beat movement, uh, and what they generate is something called cliviform constants, which are linked to migraine. By the way, I get classic migraine. I see cliviform constants when I have a, a migraine aura. And cliviform constants are known visual hallucinations in raised commas that nobody know what causes them. Right. Um, and th- we know that certain forms of stroboscopic light do stimulate cliviform constants. Um, so it's not that strange that there are more of the devices out there. The difference with the Lucia is that the Lucia was actually designed by a consultant neurologist and by a consultant psychologist. So these were medical people, consultants, who devised. Now, what's happened is, out there, certain individuals have bought Lucias, and I know this for a fact, they've bought them, they've taken them apart, and put them together again, and they don't link them to a computer and everything else, and charge a third of the price. Now, you get what you pay for. Now, effectively, the reason the the devices were so expensive initially was the amount of research and investment of time and money that the two Austrians had put in. But, you know, you you take Coca-Cola, you take Pepsi or you buy the Coke, you buy the Coke down your local Walmart. It's up to you what you want to take. I don't do, do. Do I believe that Lucia is more powerful? I don't know. No, but that's good to know, though. I didn't know if that that was an actual brand name. Right. So. Yeah, that's that's good to know. I'll keep I'll keep my eyes open for that. So what what about decalcifying the pineal gland? Because you know you hear about all this like oh uh, fluoride, you know calcifies the pineal gland, and I wonder if that's true or if it's just a conspiracy. But I mean I stopped uh, using I stopped using fluoride in my toothpaste uh, a little while ago, and um, there's all kinds of like heavy metal detoxes you can do, like true true ones, like with cellular binding binding products and stuff like that so do you recommend anything or do you do you even I, I don't i don't i don't know i don't i don't do conspiracy theories um i i, I as a historian 
um, was one of my qualifications is, is I've got a degree in history. And one of the things as a historian is that I believe in the cock up argument of history. Um, have there been conspiracies in the past? Yeah, and there will be conspiracies in the future. But um, I don't believe to the extent that a lot of the conspiracy, conspiracy people believe them to be. And I, I, I tend to avoid that area, not because I don't have sympathy, not that I don't have interest. It's just that I'm trying to keep solidly scientific. I'm trying to keep within rational thought, because when I have to take on skeptics, I don't want to be in a position where somebody will turn around and say, well, you said in one of your talks something that was utterly nonsense. I mean, they pick me up on on things when I do talks like this. You know, I I might say something slightly incorrect, like somebody might mishear. Yeah, yeah. Say yeah. a difference between a proton and a photon. Yeah, I know yeah. the difference between a proton and a photon, but they'll pick it up and say, Anthony Peake doesn't know the difference between a proton and a photon. Yeah, I do. Yeah. It's just the way I said something. Yeah, um, yeah. So I have to be very, very careful on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, well, that's what I'm lot, getting. That's what I'm getting at. So what what is your opinion about that then about the pineal gland and like and um i know that that there does seem to be a a problem with ossification whether the ossification going bone like within is is cure is 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 caused by fluoride i have no idea Oh, okay okay only because i have no idea right and i'm sure there are people that have looked into it and can prove it and there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to do so because clearly Clearly, ossification is something that happens to the pineal gland, and if it stops the pineal gland being effective, it will stop the doors of perception being opened. And, of course, the moot point then is, is that deliberate? And if it's deliberate, why is it deliberate, and who is trying to stop us opening our doors of perception? Yeah. Well, it almost seems like it could almost, that could almost be an increase on what the brain is already doing, right? If the brain doesn't kind of dumb down all the information that we're receiving on a daily basis and we're just kind of being a blind mess. Oh, yeah. we Well, exactly. By the way, it's now come to me what the... Um, and it has just come to me. i am just checked it up. It's, come, it's Charles Bonnet syndrome. Oh, right, yeah. It's the thing where people see little people. Hmm. They must see me around a lot, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just said it before, Darren, because, you know... I'm a little on the well, shorter I, well, side. I, I, I mean, if you read, if you ever read uh, Jacques Vallée's passport, to, uh, Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia, and uh, John Keel's um, John Keel's Project Trojan Horse, because both these books and even earlier writers like Evans Vents, um, who was an anthropologist, have argued that there there are other elemental creatures that share this space with us, and that. In given circumstances, we can perceive these entities um, and that the entities that we see in UFOs and the entities that are described in UFOs are just part of the same typology. It's all a continuum. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I very much believe in that. And maybe I even think, DMT, like the same entities you see on, oh yeah. you know. Entering, oh, totally. Yeah. The the, 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 the the gremlins that people see in DMT, for instance, if you read a lot of the reports by Rick Strassman when he did his research in the early 90s at the University of New Mexico, he, a lot of his um, subjects described situations whereby they were taken into craft, they were placed into rooms, that they were experimented upon by creatures, little creatures that looked very much like uh, what 
we would call greys. We know from Terence McKenna and his concept of the machine elves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I did a conference last year called Breaking Convention at the University of um, Greenwich here in the UK, and you get all the great and good from around the world who were at that uh, that conference, for instance, people like Daniel Pinchbeck and individuals like that. And again, you know, the whole consensus of opinion here is that, you know, there's a circularity here that there, there is there is something profoundly important about entheogens and the taking of entheogens yeah. uh, and ayahuasca and such like. But yeah. of course they are illegal and we must stress that. They are yeah. illegal in certain parts of the world and they could be dangerous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's changing, I think. That's changed. Even in the last five, ten years, it's really opening up. I mean, I think it will it will continue to change. So so uh, time has been flying by here. I wanted to add, we do want to just ask a couple quick things here before... Yeah. And make sure yeah. that you get a chance to, to say anything else you think uh, about your new book. But we, we used to ask our guests, because synchronicities would become a big topic on the show, and we used to ask uh, our guests, uh, I don't know what's happened lately, but about, about their personal experiences and all. And you've, you've uh, had some crazy experiences yourself, and you talk about some pretty deep synchronicities and, of course, experiences with the lucid light device and all that. Does anything come to mind at all about... Uh... You know, synchronicities, um, synchronicity is something that uh, I've also written about in the past, or what I call synchrondipity, which is fortuitous synchronicities. I will give you one now that will blow your head off. Okay. okay? Um, I, funnily enough, I'm now writing uh, a book on this particular individual. It's a guy called J.B. Priestley. And J.B. Priestley uh, wrote a series of fascinating time plays in the 1930s and 1940s. And my next book, which I'm working on at the moment, will be a narrative about his time plays, the influences he had from people like um, Peter Ospensky, um, Aldous Huxley, uh, Carl Gustav Jung, um, um, various other individuals, uh, J.W. Dunn, as an example. And But in, when I was writing my first book, is the uh, is the life after death extraordinary science of what happens when you die? I was interested in the work of Priestley, and I needed to get hold of a copy of his book Man and Time, which was published in 1964. And I went down to my local library in Horsham, in West Sussex, and they didn't have a copy, nor did they have a copy in any of the local libraries. So I had to order the library the book from the British Library storage facility in Boston Spa in Yorkshire, quite close to Skipton, by the way. Mm. And I put my claim in and they processed it and it disappeared off. And they said, it'll take a few weeks for you to, for the book to be picked up. Um, But we'll let you know when it's in. So I'm researching like mad the book and I'm reading up about synchronicity and everything else. And it was synchronicity I was particularly interested in at that time. And a few weeks later, get a phone call from Horsham Library to say the book has turned up. And I said, all oh, right, okay, book's turned up. That's good. And I took a few days to get into the library. And then I went into the library, brought it back, placed the book in my study and left it there for another two or three days. One evening, I'm on my way to bed and I had nothing to read. Now, I'm the kind of person I have to be reading something, even if it's the back of a bloody Kellogg's Weetabix. <laughs> Kellogg's don't wait Weetabix, do they? Um, some Kellogg's pack of cereal. I'll just read it because I need to be reading something. And... I picked the book up and literally I flipped through the pages at random. Now, as a coincidence, I actually have the book here because I'm just, just let me a second. (laughs) 
Right, I actually have the book here because I'm doing some research on other things. So if you bear with me for a second, yeah, I'll flick course. through. Yeah. So what I did was the book has, this is a huge book, and it has 316 pages. Okay? Now, I flick through, as I'm doing now, uh, and I flick through the book. And the book just opens at page 91. Okay? And in page 91... Priestley is discussing about how light travels. And he says, this second form of the basic idea is the easy to understand. For if a ray of light takes time to reach our eyes, it will take longer to reach them the further we are away from it. So two people a large distance apart could justifiably disagree about the date of an event. This is clearly illustrated by a figure and an explanation based on uh, James Coleman, Relativity for the Layman. I've checked up Relativity for the Layman. It was actually written about five or six years before. So J.B. Priestley could have chosen any book. So remember, already we're getting into the realms of what's the chances of. Priestley could have chosen any book. He chose this one. I start reading. I'm lying in bed. It's late in the night. And it says, Coleman says in his Relativity for Layman, it shows the star Betelgeus in the constellation Orion the Hunter and Aldebaran in Taurus the Bull. Betelgeus and Aldebaran are 352 light years respectively from the Earth. Also, Aldebaran is about 200 light years from Betelgeus. Now, suppose there is a blowout on Orion on the night of March the 17th, 2000, caused by Betelgeus exploding. I looked at that and I went to my wife and I said, what year is it? And she said, it's 2000. And I said, what? date what month is it and she said it's march and i said what date in march is it and she said it's the 17th and i said what time of day is it and she said it's the evening and i said you're a statistician what is the chances of all those variables for me to pick up the book and read it on the exact day that coleman had picked and of all the dates he could possibly pick okay so that stunned me chances were ridiculous. So the next day I'm doing some more research and I'm downstairs and I'm doing research on mitochondria. Okay. So mitochondria is, is, is mitochondrial DNA. It's carried through the female line. So within each cell, there's something called a mitochondria and it carries its own form of DNA. And I was wanting to research on this and I thought to myself, the only person I know that will have written about mitochondria is probably Richard Dawkins. Now, I've got all of Dawkins' books, and I've been reading them over the years. Now, around about 20 years ago, I would have read Richard Dawkins' Blind Watchmaker. And I picked the book up, and I thought to myself, oh, I read this book in Greece. I read this book in Greece on a tiny island called Simi in Greece. And I remember reading it on a beach. It came to me in a flash of, uh, of memory. Now, I never, ever dog-ear pages. I never put the top of a page down. I always use a bookmark. But I picked up the book and there was a page that was bookmarked and I knew with absolute certainty that my earlier self, 20 years before, had put a dog ear in there and I knew why. And I opened it and I was absolutely right. It's the one part in the book that he mentions mitochondria. He doesn't mention it anywhere else in his writings. So three days later, and I'll stop now, three days later, I'm talking to my wife about this. And she said, I'm fed up with this synchronicity you're always talking about. It's absolute nonsense. And we were staying with a, a friend, her brother in Cheltenham. And we're in this secondhand bookshop, completely disordered, books here, there, everywhere, piled everywhere. And, uh, and Penny said, let's prove your synchronicity is nonsense. She said, what book do you need at the moment? I said, you know, 
I need a biography of um, of William Blake. And she went, oh, bloody hell. It was in her eye line. She pulled it out of the bookcase and she swore and threw it across the room and actually stormed out the shop. <laughs> now, they are synchronicities because... One of the things that Priestley writes about, Jung used to write about, was something called the library angel. The library angel is that part of you, which I argue is the daemon, mm-hmm. your part, your game player. They, my game player, knew I needed that information. Me, 20 years ago, knew that I was going to be reading about mit- mitochondria 20 years in the future. And it gave me that clue to say, I know what you're going to be doing in 20 years' time, and I'm going to leave this little clue so when in 20 years' time you open it, you'll go, shit, that was weird. That was a good one. Yeah, compound. I love, I love the compound ones where there's a, there, you know, there's a few, few parts that all kind of fit together. Well, that's, that, well, that's the literal definition of synchronicity. A synchronicity has to be a series of rooted coincidences. Yeah. If it's just a coincidence, it's a coincidence. Synchronicity yeah. has significance, which is what Carl Gustav Jung argued in his book on synchronicity. And, of course, Wolfgang Pauli, the quantum physicist, not a lot of people know this. Wolfgang Pauli spent the last few years of his life absolutely fascinated by synchronicity. This is Wolfgang Pauli of the Pauli exclusion principle for all you scientists out there that think it's all woo-woo crap, <laughs> you know. And also Schrodinger wrote a book called What is Life towards the end of his life. Huh. You know, quantum physicists are the guys that really their brains get so scrambled by the things they discover that they start to realize that there's far more to it. Yeah. Yeah. Right on, Anthony. Thanks for staying on so long. It's been great. Okay. Yeah. Good. No, it's been fantastic. Yeah, I, it's just been, yeah. I get into motor mouth mode no, when I do this. I tend to just sort of go for it, really. Yeah, yeah. no, it's been really good. So we'll uh, we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. And, and uh, your book's coming out soon, right? Like September, it's mid-September? The, it's out on the 15th. It's it, on, on Amazon, it's saying the 13th, but it's actually out on the 15th nice. as far as I'm uh, in Canada, USA, and the UK. That'll probably be right around the time when this is released. So that's good timing. And um, we'll, we'll keep in touch. And geez, if you're ever in any, con- do you have any conferences coming up or anything like that where you're speaking at? Are you coming to North oh, America in the next? Uh, I'm, I, people keep inviting me to speak to North America, but at the moment, nobody's actually willing to actually finance the plights. Right. Um, <laughs> I was in Australia. They, they financed um, a trip to Australia uh, earlier this year where I spoke down in Melbourne. But I would love to speak uh, in, in Canada and the States. But what I would need to do is to link up a series of talks to make it worthwhile yeah, yeah, exactly. to do so. So if there's anybody out there listening in who's saying, you know, we'd like to, we'd like, um, to listen to this guy talk because I have a whole series of talks. You know, I, I do a lot of stand-up talking and lectures and things. Um, so, you know, more than happy to do it. So if anybody out there is interested in, in joining together to get me across, I'd be more than happy to do so. The Australians really loved it. So they've Great. already invited me back. Yeah, well, you're a great, great speaker, very eloquent, and uh, yeah, good luck in the future, and hope to hear from you again. And we'll, I'm definitely going to check out that book. That's pretty fascinating. <laughs> I, think, okay, I, I get thanks, a feeling we thanks, just guys. scratched the surface. We did. Believe me, you know, I could go on for 12 hours. Yeah. I know David Icke does that, but I could do it as well. Right on, Anthony. Thanks okay, a lot. Yeah, Take care. Enjoy your guys. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, Andrew. See ya. Bye. Bye. There you have it, buddy. Wow. Mind-blowing. Appreciate your parents. No, what? Don't fucking ask that on the podcast. Oh. Are we doing the outro? We are doing the Jeez. outro. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun one. Yeah, just scratch the surface. It was worth now. getting up at four in the morning. Oh, for, for sure. That always 
some guests, you just want to do whatever you can to talk to them. And I mean, that's mind blowing. Like his new book sounds really interesting, getting into the pineal gland and all that, really. Three years in the making. Have you ever tasted that divine nectar in the back of your throat? I wonder if that's why the yogis use the uh, ujjayi breath, which is... I wonder if that's why people taste like that that's coppery like, before they have a heart attack. No, that's blood. Oh. <laughs> that's that, that breath in yoga where you keep your... You constrict the back of your throat and you breathe through your nose like that. Never done it. Let's try, but that could be why they want to get that divine nectar in there. Yeah, unfortunately, we are now late for work, so we're going to have to keep this outro short and sweet. Big thanks to Anthony for coming on the show. Um, follow him on Twitter, all that fun stuff. Get the new book. We'll have all that stuff in the show notes. Uh, Let's try that Lucid Light device, too. Sure. Yeah. You oh, try I, it first. I, okay, no problem. Okay. <laughs> uh, support the show so we can get Grandma Lucid Light device. And help us stay ad sponsor and affiliate free. Um, Grandamerica.ca slash support. Sign people up for the newsletter. Grandamerica.ca slash news. Spam Gram. What else? Yeah. Uh, leave a voicemail. Leave a voicemail. Check out our PO box. You can send stuff to us if you want. That's right. What else? Lots of stuff. Lots of the, the, the notes has the, the notes has a whole list of stuff, all links to and how to help to out do. and how to contact us and communicate us. Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. Yeah, there's a ton of ways to support the show and the show notes that don't involve uh, money, any money. So uh, check it out. And we will. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. All right. See you next week. Take care.
I want a good skull from a synchronicity Graham reads it out, then Daramite give it to me Hey, don't you please read it low, yeah